Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. CSB is committed to improving the financial well-being of local small businesses through financial education and banking services. Learn more at cambridgesavings.com, member FDIC. And Dandelion Energy, helping homeowners across the Northeast to lower their carbon footprints with geothermal heating and cooling systems. More information at dandelionenergy.com. I'm Jim Bradley, head on Boston Public Radio. In the past couple of days, a lot of turmoil for investors and customers as two banks collapsed. President Biden said this morning that American taxpayers won't be footing the bill for any potential bailouts. We'll check in with you about the state of the economy, actually your personal economy, that is. Are you getting 2008 vibes, collapse, bailouts, recession in the cards, federal benefits cut? Are you worried about a number of walls collapsing all at once? I'm Marjorie Egan. Then we're hosting a Monday morning political panel with Jesse Murmel, former congressional candidate and founder of DeWitt Impact Group and former Mass Republican chair Jennifer Nassour. We'll talk rent control, transparency at City Hall and Beacon Hill, plus rumors about Vice President Kamala Harris giving Elizabeth Warren the cold shoulder over comments she made to Jim and me in January. All that ahead, Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Jim Browdy, I am Marjorie Egan. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GPH. Good morning, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. And we want to tell you, Tuesday, that's tomorrow, is ordinarily a library day. For a variety of reasons, we will not be at the Boston Public Library tomorrow. Mayor Wu is scheduled. We hope to have her here in Brighton with us. We'll let you know about that at noon. So a financial scramble over the weekend as regulators announced the collapse of two banks in the U.S., the second largest bank failure in U.S. history behind only the 2008 failure of Washington Mutual. That's according to The New York Times. President Biden spoke this morning to reassure Americans their money is safe and to detail the federal government action again, the most sweeping since 2008. Every American should feel confident that their deposits will be there if and when they need them. The management of these banks will be fired. If the bank is taken over by FDIC, the people running the bank should not work there anymore. Now, uh, the president says there every American should be confident that their money will be there. Well, in a New York Times editorial by Elizabeth Warren, she says who that every American is. That includes billion-dollar companies, crypto investors, and the very venture capital firms that triggered the bank run at SVB in the first place. Uh, that's who that is. So we wanted to check in with you. Our social safety nets for real people have been gutted in great part by Republicans in Congress. We have a housing crisis in Massachusetts. Those extra COVID SNAP or food stamp benefits have expired or about to. Have you seen your financial well dry up? And are you now living paycheck to paycheck? As according to a recent survey, 60% of Americans, including 45% of high earners, are what are you most concerned about financially? 877-301-8970. You pointed out to me this Elizabeth Warren's thing this morning. It's a great piece. It is, a, it is incredible. Well, you, you may like her or not like her, but she is really uh, good about uh, banks and what her problems have been. And she's been relentless in, in pursuing um, you know, the, the lack of regulation for banks and, and is basically saying that th- this was the part that really got me, that on Friday – the, the higher-ups in this bank, the executives there at this bank, were busy paying out congratulatory bonuses 
hours before the Federal Deposit of Insurance Co- right. Corporation rushed in to take over the, the failing institution. So you feel like, it, it, in some ways, we're back to 2008. We're not, thank God, back to 2008 because this is not widespread. But, you know, we, we shored up, after the Great Depression, we shored things up, right? And we kind of Not the Great those. Depression, 2008 you're talking about, right? You don't mean no, the Great Depression, you mean the, the do, 30s? Yes, yes. Oh, okay. After the Great Depression, we shored things up so that the disaster that happened then when, when people just were jumping out windows after they lost everything in the stock market could not happen again. We stayed with those rules more or less for all these years. Then we began to loosen them up, and then we had the disaster, 2007, 2008. Dodd-Frank, or Barney Frank, our old congressman, <clears throat> was involved in putting that together to avoid what happened in 2008. And then and some Democrats voted for this uh, change that President Trump wanted, too. It wasn't just mm-hmm. Republicans. It was a smaller number of Democrats, but it was Democrats, too, said, no, 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 we don't want to put these, we don't want to make the regulations too, uh, too strenuous on these banks. And Jerome Powell seemed to be going along with this as well. So here we are again on a smaller level. But the bigger point to me is, Jim, we talk about this all the time. Four in ten Americans can't afford to pay their medical, medical bills. The biggest cause of bankruptcy in the United States is, is medical bankruptcy. We can't, people for can't people who have insurance, not people for people who have who insurance. Have insurance. People around here can't afford houses. They can't afford to go to college. Uh, you, you know, there was a piece in the Globe on Sunday or Saturday about oil bills up in Maine. Uh, the, the people can't pay their oil bills. In the story uh, yesterday, or was it this morning, about SNAP benefits being cut, <clears throat> people can't pay their utilities. And and so I thought well, she Chris- makes. I thought Warren makes a great point that we're bailing out these billion dollar companies and these crypto investors. At the same time, she makes a comparison with the fact that the loan forgiveness program is like an you know a an inch away from disappearing, depending on the Supreme Court. But we don't have to wait for that. The SNAP benefits, the extra SNAP benefits that, by the way, are not just for poor people who, sadly, many Americans love to hate, but for moderate income working people who just can't afford to pay their bills. Those are disappearing, but we can bail out the billion-dollar companies. You're the mathematician. Sort of. Seven seven million people in Massachusetts. Yeah. 638,000 people. Just under 10%. Qualify. For SNAP benefits. And we're one of the richest states in America. Um, They were talking about in this piece about SNAP, people are in line for blocks and blocks and blocks over in Chelsea uh, to get get food because they're so worried about not having enough that things will run out at the end of the month, etc. So... You know, you do think to yourself, and even people that are in the middle class, even people that have had good jobs, um, how many people in their 60s can afford to retire unless they have pensions? And it wasn't that long ago that that regular Joe and Janes didn't have to go to college. They worked for some of these big corporations. I know my father worked for Firestone. People worked for Pitney Bowes. People worked for different big companies. They got pensions. Well, that was a couple of generations ago. That's well, disappeared. Ex- exactly, but it wasn't. It was my father, and yeah. it was pro- well, probably your father was disbarred. So I guess no, he didn't no, get it. You don't have to mention that he was disbarred. <laughs> it's usually that he went to jail, which he didn't. I mean, it wasn't a big pension, but it was enough sure. so that the the, the safety net. Um, was there for a while, and now I think it seemed to have disappeared again. And this, I, uh, uh, the, the senator from uh, from Connecticut, Chris Murphy, yeah. had, had a great it's line. Fabulous on guns, by the way. Yeah, I guess a great um, book about gun reform. Larry Summers, who of course was used to be the Secretary of the Treasury under o- Obama, said it's not time for moral hazard lectures or for lesson administrating or for alarm about the political consequences of bailouts, because of course the big story now is what are the political count. Uh, 
consequences of bailouts. Well, Chris Murphy said in a tweet, this is also not the time for dismissiveness about the moral hazard. A major run on banks would be terrible, but so is a continuation of the status quo where a bailout for the rich is regrettable but sound policy but a bailout for the poor is dangerous socialism. That's exactly the point that Elizabeth Warren makes. They both are right on. So we have two things on the table. If you want to comment on what Elizabeth Warren had to say, not only about who we bail out and who we don't, but also about the weakening of the regulations under Trump that were passed post-2008 to ensure that we didn't have this run on the banks again. That's one. But we're much more interested in how your personal economy is doing in whatever it is, March of 2023, 877-301-8970. Let's go to Evan in a car. You're first on Boston Public Radio. Hey, Evan. Morning. How are you? Good. Fine, thank you. Um, so Friday morning, SVB, before the regulators uh, came in, yep. the executives uh, paid themselves out bonuses. Yeah. Incredible. So, <laughs> I guess there are no libertarians when there's a run on the bank. <laughs> that was one of the most shocking things I, I read, Evan, uh, that, that, that I just mentioned. That was Elizabeth Warren had that it's column in the, in the New York Times. The anatomy yeah. it must take to do that. It's incredible. Well, remember back in the 2008 bailout, uh, AIG, that big, huge government insurer, um, where they were, they were like almost, to- well, I shouldn't say totally bailed out, but they got lots of money from the government, right? That's even worse. They used the bailout money. It was $200 million yeah. in bonuses for their executives after but, they failed. But don't you remember then they went out and had some, some big party with, it, with, with, uh, at, some, at some luxurious resort with, with jacuzzis <laughs> and saunas and everybody having cocktails on the beach. I mean, it is, you know, Evan, when they talk about the most, the happiest countries in the world, you know where they are? Places with great social safety nets. That's true. Evan, thanks for the call. We appreciate it. 877-301-8970 is the phone number. And you know what else? When you hear young people talk about their, uh, they're not sure that capitalism is the best way to go anymore. Mm. Well, you wonder why that might be, Jim. Don't you think? Uh, Caroline (laughs) in Boston. You're next on Boston Public Radio. Hello there. Hello. So, so Jim, I just I just want to uh, correct your statement when yeah. you said that uh, pensions were something that were you know lost that only benefited people of a couple generations ago. Yeah. It, in in fact, um, there was a great book written a couple years ago uh, where uh, an investigative reporter looked at the actual pension funds and found that they were fully funded up until the year 2000. And then in the year 2000, those pension funds, and we're talking about defined benefit plans. Yeah, where you know exactly what your benefit's going to be. That's what it means. Correct. Um, that those, um, uh, the government started to allow companies to um, essentially raid their pension funds. Sure. Uh, for other purposes. Yeah, I, yeah Caroline, if I can interrupt you, I, I either misspoke or you misunderstood. I wasn't talking about the underfunding of existing pension plans. I was talking about the availability of pension plans at all for workers in this country. That did happen a couple well, of generations except ago. except for government. I mean, people except for, government, for the government. Right. I yeah. mean, if you work – some of the police departments do quite well with their pensions, I would say, and firefighters. But and, the air – Go ahead. I'm sorry, Caroline. But the airlines, but the airlines mm-hmm. um, had pension plans, and um, most big employers, employers 
that had, uh, you know, a thousand or more employees offered some sort of pension plan. Yeah. And, uh, um, and those things, uh, those pension plans were essentially rated. That's totally true. Exactly. Totally true. And, and a lot of people's pensions Caroline, now thank you. no longer come from thank the company you. that they work for for 20 and 30, But the government years. took them over. They come from the government. And yeah. people, I, I, I believe, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the most you can get from one of those government pensions is like 40000 I don't know. Dollars a year. So if you were making a lot of money and you planned your life accordingly, you thought you were going to get a pension worth maybe eighty thousand dollars or ninety thousand dollars. Woe to you! You found out now that you're only going to be able to get forty thousand uh, dollars because a lot of companies. Um, I work for one uh, that uh, you know got rid of them. Where the herald? Yeah. You know, if we can just go back to Elizabeth Warren again, because this is so enraging. Uh, uh, the juxtaposition of SNAP benefits disappearing <laughs> this month. In June, the loan forgiveness. How many people are benefiting up to? Is it up to forty million? I can't remember who have who would be potentially. I think it's twenty six million have already applied, and another ten to fifteen million right. would be eligible for loan ta- forgiveness. Child tax credit. Don't forget that. Right, and that the increase in the child tax credit disappeared. Remember when Mansion, Cinema, and the Republicans, right. even though already in I think a year it had reduced the poverty rate for kids by fifty percent. This is at the same time that the federal government is going to ensure that all deposits at these two banks are repaid 100 cents on the dollar. I'm sorry, but I'm going to reread what uh, Elizabeth Warren wrote in the uh, New York Times today. Not just small businesses and nonprofits, but also billion-dollar companies, crypto investors, and the very venture capital firms that triggered the bank run on SVP in the first place, all in the name of preventing further contagion. I mean, you know, this gets back to what you and I talk about almost every day now, and people are tired of it. They're raising their retirement age, two years in France, and all the workers are on the streets, closing down the ports, closing down the railroads, etc. Talk about a, a scam like just a position, bailing out the big boys at the same time that we're cutting the safety net for low and moderate income families. And once again, what are we going to do about it? We're going to tweet. Bridget in New Haven, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Hey, Bridget. Hi, I'm just calling to say that my husband has a small um, biotech based out of New Haven, just three employees. It's an Alzheimer's drug startup that they mm. fought tooth and nail to get any type of funding for over the past four years. Um, they finally have a very, very small nest egg, and it was all invested at Silicon Valley Bank. Oh, my God. Um, and it was the absolute worst weekend of our life. <laughs> I'm a stay-at-home mom, so we're entirely dependent on that income. We're not millionaires by any stretch of the imagination. And to think that all of this hard work and innovation there in clinical trials and to think that it could have just come to a complete halt this weekend was just absolutely terrifying. And we couldn't be more grateful that the depositors were backed well, up Bridget, by the government. Just to be clear, and I hope uh, uh, we are, is uh, I think mo- both Marjorie and I agree with what Elizabeth Warren says. Before she goes into the big boys and girls who are going to be bailed out. She says not just small businesses and nonprofits. I assume everybody listening to the show thinks your husband's company doesn't fall into that uh, uh, category of those entities that probably don't deserve government support, but rather in, you know, a struggling small business that's trying to do really good things for people. And I'm, I'm glad you got the good news you, uh, you did. What was the worry like before you heard the word, Bridget? Oh my gosh, it was terrifying. <laughs> we we didn't even know if we could 
like what our future would look like if we were going to be able to, first of all, so he could pay his company or his employees, employees. on Tuesday. Oh um, and then secondly, what that looks like for us personally when our entire life is wrapped up in that. Well, we wish um, you luck. So, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. I think it would have been a complete extinction event for event for most of biotech and innovation. And even though they're, they bailed out some of the bigger venture capital funds, some of the bigger players, they had to, they had to take care of everybody because the little guys were wrapped up in that. Uh, Bridget, thanks for your call. And uh, we're happy that your family uh, came out well here. Well, in this Warren piece, it explains where this bank went wrong. Uh, it says SVB suffered from a toxic risk of misky, risky management and weak supervision. Instead of managing that risk, SVB funneled deposits into long-term bonds because of, of course, the interest rates going up, uh, making it harder for the bank to respond to a drawdown. And they did not count in the risk of those rising interest rates. And I guess the bank was just very badly Run. One of the things that makes me a little nervous, which hopefully one of our colleagues can find, I hope those congratulatory bonuses were cleared before <laughs> the bank went belly up. I really hope those executives didn't get screwed in the uh, process. Okay, we're, we're talking about a financial unease. Uh, just not that just this this bank collapsed this weekend, but in general, uh, how are you feeling about your financial future? If you're a kid or a young twenties or thirties, how are you feeling about your ability to ever? Uh, get into the uh, housing market and paying off your student loans. And what about people who can't afford childcare? Listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brady and Marjorie Egan. For a variety of reasons, we will not be at the Boston Public Library tomorrow. We believe that Mayor Wu will join us in Brighton. We'll let you know that at 12 o'clock, so please stay tuned. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the bank failures in America causing chaos over the weekend uh, and causing us to focus a little bit more on the personal economic travails that average Americans are suffering through. A CNBC story of a couple of days ago, as of January of this year, 60% of all U.S. adults, including 45% of high-income earners, were living paycheck to paycheck. Paycheck to paycheck. 877-301-8970. Are you one of those people and are you worried even more now when you feel that parts of the world or financial world are collapsing around you? By the way, we're getting texts from people saying that we said the taxpayers are bailing out this bank. That's not – we're not. No, we said we, the opposite. We said the opposite. So I hope we did. Uh, Maybe we made a Yeah, they're not. We're not. It's, uh, it comes from insurance from this bank and from some other banks as well. We bailed out – the taxpayers did bail out uh, big banks in 2008. Mm-hmm. And Obama made the biggest – one of the biggest mistakes of his presidency by letting all these guys walk. No one – no one – you know, there were no perp walks for any of these guys that uh, caused this One massive. mid-level guy, if I remember <clears throat> correctly, right? Yeah, one – listen to this. This is from Anna from Lancaster. No oil money, no hot water, and heating kitchen in one room with space heater to 40 degrees to keep pipes from freezing. They failed during the deep freeze last month, so broken pipes mean no water in the bathroom. I am flushing with buckets. Yes, I am working, and I'm 64, but by all means, come after me for my student loans. (laughs) Melanie in Newburyport. uh, And by the way, just so people are clear, the student loan issue rests 100% in the Supreme Court, but the oral argument suggests that uh, it's not likely to stand, but we'll find out in June. Melanie, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. 
Um, the point I wanted to make, I, I'm so angry about this news, is because I really feel like the um, banking crisis in 08 led to the Tea Party movement, which led to Donald Trump, which led to the MAGA crazies that we have in charge of government now. And it's all that anger over the, um, the, uh, the banks who were, the bank executives who walked away with bonuses. Yeah. And the rest of us suffered. And I really think that that's a direct line to Trump. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, like I said, I think it was one of the worst things Obama did in his presidency was not make sure that, that, that people paid a price for this. And uh, it seemed as though a lot of these places that could, how about the airlines, right, that, 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 that got bailed out? We couldn't have the airline uh, business co- collapse. That was a long time ago. That was after 9-11. But what do they do with the money, the, the taxpayer money? It went back to shareholders, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, Remember it's who was co- the chief lobbyist for the airlines, by the way? It was the wife of the uh, Senate uh, the president. leader of Senate, Tom Daschle. Yeah, Tom Daschle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Melanie, uh, we feel like you do. Thank you uh, much for uh, the call and the little piece of history there. 877-301-8970 is the number. Where do you want uh, to go? Let's go to Mika in Malden. Hi, Mika. Hi, Mika. Hi there. Thanks for uh, taking my call. Thank you. <clears throat> I just wanted to share a little bit um, from a younger person's perspective. I'm sure. 30. I've lived in Boston for about 10 years now. I live in Malden. Currently um, lived, you know, in Cambridge as long as I could. And eventually during the pandemic kind of had to keep moving out. But even if, you know, my student loan debt is um, relieved, you know, I'm someone who paid for my whole college on my own and sort of was given that, you know, expectation of that's sort of the only way you're able to get a a quote unquote good job. Mm -hmm. But at this point, you know, even though I've lived in Boston, this is where I consider my home. I can't even imagine ever buying a house here at this point. Um, we, my partner and I live in Malden and our rent, we just got our rent increase. It went up 10% last year and now it's gone up 10% again. And my partner and I both work in tech, ironically enough, and that's still not even good enough for us to be able to stay around here. So it gives me a lot of empathy for anyone else, you know, who's struggling because, as well. And what's your rent yeah. in Malden? What's your rent in Malden? It is currently twenty, about twenty five hundred for a two bed, two bath, and it's wow. going up to three thousand. What kind of? Uh, how, what does this do to your psyche, Mika? In addition to your pocketbook, what does it do to your head? I mean, it's terrible. It's like, what's the point in even <laughs> trying to, you know, live this great life when I know I can't stay in this state? Like, I have a few friends who've managed to buy houses around here, but at what, you know? It's either you save every single spare penny you have and you don't enjoy yourself or, you know, you have to move somewhere where you don't know anybody. People make this joke like, oh, if you can't afford to live around here, why why do you stay? It's like, well, you know, Boston's a beautiful, awesome, cultural, great place with lots of food and fun places to hang out. Sure, I could move somewhere in the middle of nowhere and buy a house, but, you know. I'd like to be able to do both of those things. Mika, we are really, really glad you called and wish you uh, better financial luck in the future. Thanks for sharing your story. Really appreciate it. You know, I'm just thinking of how many years have we said, has it been 20 years now that we talked about how people that grew up uh, can't, afford to live here. can't afford to live there and they are people that are um, working for the cities and towns they lived in. They're, they're teachers or they're firefighters or they're police that can't afford to live there anymore. Unless you're the Boston cop who was at January 6th, you get to live in New Hampshire and collect uh, your medical pay, right? Yeah, yeah, um, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Let's go to Mark, Mark and Taunton. Mark and Taunton. Hi. 
Hi, um, I'm a first-time caller. And I'm, Thank anyway, you. I'm, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I actually live in um, Northampton. I'm a truck driver right now, making a pickup in, um, in Taunton. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually were, um, I got a, you know, I went to college. I got my BA in English. I got, uh, went to grad school for a master's in plant and soil science. And for 26 years, I was in agriculture. Um, and then when I attempted a, <laughs> a, a slightly different. Um, Career choice. I um, at, at, when I was 50, it didn't quite work out. Needed a job, and I ended up in trucking. And um, long story. But anyway, um, yeah, I work for a large food service company, um, and I work about 12 hours a day, five days a week. I'm home most days. I'm in the Boston area uh, much of the time, and um, I make good money. And I'm, but I'm like looking at it. I'm looking at. Um, what I make now and what I used to think was a lot of money. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I mean, I, um, you know, I man, you know, um, I live alone. I'm divorced. I have a kid in college and, um, I'm making, I'm doing okay. And actually our company, um, it's a food service company. We service mostly the restaurant industry. So when the pandemic hit, it got kind of ugly, but, um, but they're determined to keep us. They pay us very well. And, um, but I taught, but like my friends who mostly have, um, you know, white collar jobs and really good stuff. They're there. A lot of them are right on the line. And, yeah. um, and it's kind of a weird thing. Like, um, you know, um, you know, I literally, um, well, I'm, um, like I said, I'm, I work about 60 hours a week, but I made about $120,000 last year, which is huge. But I'm looking at that and there's like this crazy, um, thing, like, um, we work a lot of hours. And, but it's like there's a fear of cutting back because I'm I'm 60 years old now and I'm looking at the future and I'm like looking at what everything costs and um a year ago a little over a year ago I bought a house in Northampton and main, one of the reasons I decided to buy it rather than rent or or find a condo was like the rent prices up there Ridiculous. are about the same as a mortgage but yeah. if you ha- if you can if you can do a de- a, a deposit uh I, you know but if, but if you don't have that backing or something you're you're I have no idea how anyone on what I think should be a normal. Yeah, Mark, you know, you raised a great point. I mean, remember when you thought a hundred grand was going to really get you a long way? <laughs> no. Mark, thank you. You're for a good the call. storyteller, Mark. I mean, that's, that's, I mean that's, your personal that's story. Yeah. A, a great point. I mean, it's everything is so expensive and salaries and wages haven't kept up. Paul from Worcester says Obama not only let all these bankers walk, he put some of them in positions to regulate what they wrecked because they were experts in banking, remember the guy that was one of the chief uh, let everything fell 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 apart, and he not only gave him a big job in the administration, but he had him at his first. Oh, speech. Jamie Dimon. Yeah, Jimmy Dimon. Oh no, 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 it wasn't Jamie no, it wasn't Dimon. Jamie Dimon. It was the guy who was head of uh, Goldman Sachs. Yeah, who was the guy uh, who was head of? I can't think of his name. I can't think of his we'll name of either. No, he was That's the a great first. Point. It was the first state dinner with first China. State. Yeah, and I remember the photograph of him, him and either his wife great or his point, date, whoever Paul. it was. Walking and well, I think uh, no. a lot of people are intimidated by Wall Street, uh, and I think Obama, you know, was a fairly new guy when he got to Washington, and I think he thought he could get further than he could, and I think he was intimidated by Wall Street. You know, wasn't intimidated by Wall Street. Who was that? Well, for FDR, needless to say, was not intimidated by Wall Street. And I remember uh, the story about JFK and United Steel. 
One of my favorite stories ever. Why don't you tell it? Well, you tell it because you can tell it better than I can. Well, he confronted, I mean, he named names is the bottom line. Not only did he not, uh, uh, it was the steel industry, was it not at the time? Yeah, there was some big deal about their their costs, and he just called them out. Right. We we have, for the most part, it is rare. And and by the way, Biden has done pretty well on this front, calling out some corporations by name. He didn't just call out corporations by name. He called out the CEOs of these corporations. And what happened? They came a-crawling. They, they Every down. single one backed they down. Backed down. Yeah. And, and the great quote from FDR when Wall Street was coming after him, obviously, during the New Deal, uh, was that he – and they talked about how much they couldn't stand him. He said, well, I welcome their hate. Yeah, that was great. Lloyd Blankfein <laughs> was the name of the guy from Goldman Sachs who uh, – we were talking about who came to that. Uh, yeah, there was somebody else too, and I'm no, it was him. He was definitely at the first. Uh, he was definitely uh, one of the guys. Okay, we are moving on with that uh, inability to remember the names that were at the first. No, we just figured dinner. out the name. Thank you. I think I think you're right, but there was somebody else too. But I'll figure it out later. Anyway, we're going to do our political roundup up next. We're talking to uh, Jesse Rommel and uh, Jennifer Nasur, one Democrat, and one Republican, about the state of politics in the United States of America, and of course. Close to home. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And a reminder, we're going to keep reminding, we will not be at the Boston Public Library tomorrow. We will know if Mayor Wu will join us in Brighton by noon, so stay tuned. We're now joined for a political roundup by Jennifer Nassour and Jesse Marmel. Jesse Marmel is the founder and president of DeWitt Impact Group, former Democrat candidate for Congress in Massachusetts' 4th Congressional District. Jennifer Nassour is the founder of the Pocketbook Project, former chair of the Massachusetts Republican Party. Remember the Republican Party? I do. And a former candidate for Boston City Council. Great to see you both. Great to be here. Hey, thank you very much uh, for coming in. Somebody looks like they're coming from a great location, a sleeveless dress over there. I don't want to say any more. <laughs> okay. So uh, so we'll start with you, uh, Jennifer Nassour. Um, Ron DeSantis is supposedly the, uh, the uh, new, uh, new hope of the GOP, the part of the GOP doesn't like uh, President Trump. Um, he took some criticism uh, for kind of being a stiff, basically, uh, when, when he's out on the stump, not, not you know, shaking hands, just not being very charismatic and like Donald Trump or don't like Donald Trump, you certainly stop to listen to what, what he has to say whenever he's saying it. Ron DeSantis almost whines. So what do you think about uh, the future of the uh, golden boy from Florida? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, like a lot of politicians who have to go and do something new, that, you know, it's a it's a learning curve for, for him. And, and if I can just remind all of us that, you know, the most popular governor in the country who just left office at the very beginning was also, you know, policy wonk and not a retail politician. And he also had to find his stride until he became the guy who was, you know, Mr. Likeability. And, you know, I love Charlie to death, but, 
you know, one of his downfalls early on was that when you're such a policy wonk and you're so smart and you're so focused in one direction, it's very different than being the retail politician who's, you know, like, you know, Trump, I mean, he just goes off the cuff and, you know, it's, it's crazy, but, you know, I think DeSantis, once he's out there a little bit, either he gets his, 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 you know, footing or he doesn't. And if he doesn't, that could be the end of him. You know, uh, I, I don't think it's so much that what Marjorie suggested, uh, maybe it is, uh, Jesse, about, you know, learning retail politics. I think that, that uh, uh, Jennifer is right about that. It is this, this mantra of his, I'm going to play a little sound from Iowa, where every other word is anti-woke. It's like sort of a, a little kid running for high school vice president. Here is uh, essentially the major theme that DeSantis spread throughout Iowa. Here he is. We say very clearly in the state of Florida, we will fight the woke in the legislature. We will fight the woke in education. We will fight the woke in the businesses. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Our state is where woke goes to die. Oh, my God. Shut up. So what do you think of that, uh, Jesse Mermel? I mean, first of all, I think you've insulted high school student government candidates <laughs> all over the country right? uh, who, who are uh, perhaps uh, infinitely better leaders than this clown coming out of Florida. Listen, uh, I think the least scary thing about Ron DeSantis is his inability to participate in retail politics. His actual politics, his actual policies are terrifying. And when he comes out and talks about anti-woke this, anti-woke that, he's talking about anti-compassion. He's talking about anti-seeing other people. He's talking about anti-caring about our neighbors. And he's demonstrated that in his policy. Forget his stupid rhetoric. He's demonstrated that in his policy year after year after year with racist, xenophobic, anti-woman, anti-LGBTQ plus policies that are quite frankly frightening if they were to sweep the nation. And Donald Trump did his darndest uh, to, and in some cases made real progress, unfortunately, uh, in bringing those policies nationally. I think Ron DeSantis is is just, if not more terrifying, uh, because he presents in a more palatable way. Uh, by the way, as I'm glad you said what you said. Uh, Donald Trump just got 75 million uh, votes in losing <laughs> for those policies. Uh, a guy who I haven't had uh, many wonderful things to say about, except that he did his job on January 6th, Mike Pence, uh, Jesse, decided to tell the truth. And to his credit, because it's very difficult in the Republican Party on the national level in 2023 to say anything unkind about Donald Trump, he, I think, sort of cut to the core, put his family at risk, uh, that, that Trump was responsible for January 6th, all we know to be true, but you don't hear that out of a guy who is likely to run against Trump for the Republican nomination. I thought it was a sort of a semi-breath of fresh air, Jesse? <laughs> I think you're uh, you're more forgiving than I am. No question. It was the right thing to do and credit where credit is due there. But so many years too late, not just on speaking out about January, January 6th, but standing by the former occupant of the White House as he decimated our democracy and attacked so many people in our country with his truly, truly heinous policies. Uh, you know, Mike Pence, this feels like CYA. This feels like being opportunistic as he's trying to draw some distinction Maybe. leading up to the potential presidential race. Am I glad he said it? Yes. Am I giving him a ton of credit for being on the right side of history? Nope. How about it's, you? Are you giving him any credit for this, Jennifer? 
you know what's so funny is it doesn't matter what Republicans name you throw out. Jesse's going to have the same exact response no matter what. I mean, it's not she's never going to be OK with a Republican from anywhere. And I mean, I think she liked John okay. Lindsay 60 years ago in New York City. I, mean, I love Jesse. And we're friends, but if we got into Wait, a policy a discussion, if we got into a policy discussion, we would totally disagree on everything, which is exactly why we're friends and we don't talk about policy. We talk about dogs. We talk about kids. We talk about relationships and moms. I mean, it's like, you know, we can we can agree on moms at all day yeah, long. If you want to have right? a very kumbaya conversation, <laughs> Jennifer and I are on the same page. We're good there. How about but, Pence? You know, when when it comes to Pence, honestly, I so I disagree because I think that Pence, from the very beginning, when he when he joined the ticket, I thought he's I think he started to get frustrated, and I think you saw it in a lot of their body language and a lot of them not being together, not showing up together. I don't think Pence really was. He's not, he's not Trump. He's like the, he's the exact opposite of Trump. He's not that gruff New York, I'll say anything and I don't care who I hurt type of guy. He's very, um, very much a family man, very religious and very smart. And, and he was, and remember, he was a member of Congress. And so he, he, he understands politics and he, he does understand the retail stuff. I give him a lot of credit for speaking out against Trump because so many people won't. And I think that that's really a mistake and I, that people won't speak out against Trump. And I think that, you know, Mike Pence, whether he runs or not, could really take a, a nice leadership role here in guiding people who maybe don't have, I have a lot of other words to say, but I won't say on radio, but the nerve and the gumption to go against Trump. Do you remember the great, uh, no, I'm sure you remember the great Michael Lewis uh, who wrote Moneyball and that sort of thing. Uh, Michael Lewis wrote a piece, I think it was in The Guardian, I can't recall, that on an election night, Mike Pence reached over to, uh, after Trump had been declared the winner, reached over to kiss his wife, who turned away and said, according to Michael Lewis, quote, you got what you wanted, Mike. Now leave me alone. We're talking to Jesse <laughs> Rommel and Jennifer Nassour. Jennifer's thing with you, it appears that uh, at least in uh, Manhattan, uh, there will be an indictment of a former president. We don't know what's going to happen in Georgia. We don't know what's going to happen with the special counsel and ultimately the U.S. Uh, United States Attorney General. But at least one indictment appears in, uh, Im, uh, uh, imminent. Uh, Trump commented on that news about Manhattan the other day by saying, uh, all it's going to do if I'm indicted is pump up my numbers. And I tend to agree with him, sadly. Do you? I do. I I agree also. It, because, you know, you have a, a super um, left DA going after the former Republican president, right? So it, it just whether whether it's whether you agree with it or not, it's, and you know, I'm not a Trump fan. So, you know, whether you agree with it or not, it, it just reeks of bad politics. And, you know, and I think from a legal perspective, there's, it's a pretty tough case to prove to, to and then what's it going to do? It's just going to embolden Trump supporters. And I don't think, by the way, I don't think Democrats want that. I don't think Republicans want that because if he's on the ticket again as the nominee, he's going to end up winning. So, I mean, if I was a Democrat, I would be hesitant to be bringing any more attention to Donald Trump. What do you think about that, Jesse, an indictment or two or three or four? You know, I think we've talked about this when we talked about other things facing Donald Trump in the past, like impeachment, et cetera. Um, and yes, I, I do sadly believe that it will embolden and, and rile up his supporters. But I think there are 
uh, more important factors at play, like holding him accountable for his many, 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 many wrongs. And I, I agree the politics of this are not great for Democrats, but much more importantly is holding someone accountable. Uh, I know Republicans love accountability, right? What Republican doesn't love a good story about personal accountability? So let's hold Donald Trump accountable. And, and as you pointed out, Jim, this is just one of many legal issues he is facing. There's the, the civil rape trial with Eugene Car Carroll. Uh, there's what the New York Attorney General is looking into. You mentioned Georgia. Of course, the DOJ is still outstanding. Um, there are lots of other opportunities for Donald Trump to uh, to be held accountable, and I don't think a single one of them should be let go because of politics. Do you do either of you step back at any point? Because we all four of us are so immersed in the everyday here. Yeah, I think the four of us all agreed that he benefits. A former president of the United States will benefit electorally <laughs> if he's the first president in American history to be criminally indicted. Do you ever stop for a second? And take a breath and say, is this the Twilight Zone? We, you know, add up everything else that Donald Trump has done. And there are no fans among the four of us, including the former chair of the Republican Party in Massachusetts. What does this say about us? Either of you. It's scary. I mean, it's. The, the issue is, and I think what, you know, and, and we have all of us right here have had this conversation a number of times. It's just a hit on democracy, right? And I think that more people need to stop looking at um, the obnoxious side of politics and the I just want to win. And I think more people need to look at what's good for democracy. And, and maybe that's the winning candidate. Maybe that's your winning side. But Maybe we all also need to think of what's good in the long term for the country. And I think we are on a very, very, very slippery slope with both sides being so polarized. And the only people who who are winning are the people on polar opposite ends. And that needs to stop. Well, Joe Biden is not exactly a radical, Jennifer. <laughs> I mean, he is really Joe Biden is is asleep at the wheel. And we're not really I'm not really sure who's actually driving that train, because that's a very scary. That's like the scariest. Well, NBA train. I think Joe Biden is absolutely driving that train. I mean, Jim, to your point, this this will sound maybe a little Pollyanna ish, but I think about being a little kid and watching the national news and seeing politicians who, by the way, I did not grow up to agree with on anything. But watching them out there and thinking these are people who are trying to make the world a better place, who are trying to help people and ultimately being inspired and called to a life of public service in various shapes and forms. And I really do feel like for little kids who are watching what politics looks like right now, who's turning on, I was going to say the TV, but that makes me sound ancient, who's, you know, <laughs> watching TikTok or a YouTuber, uh, and seeing what's going on in American politics as a young person and feeling inspired and called to service for all the right reasons, uh, it, it makes know, me really sad. You know, I'm glad you brought this up because, because uh, uh, Jesse Marmel, because I think sometimes Democrats are telling us what we should, this is the right thing. You should think this. You shouldn't do what much of America is doing is looking at Joe Biden wherever, online, on their phones, on TV, you're thinking, oh my God. He really looks old. And we shouldn't be thinking when we look at Kamala Harris, um, yes, huge sexism, huge racism, uh, you know, against a, a, a woman of color that's the vice president. 
But it's almost like they don't want to listen to what people are telling them over and over again, which brings us to Elizabeth Warren, who was with us um, when we asked her about whether uh, Biden was uh, she was going to support Biden, and she immediately answered yes. And then we asked her. Not about we, that. Marjorie Esther. Okay, Marjorie well, has I... created this national catastrophe <laughs> for the Democratic Party single-handedly. Yeah, well, I, I have not. I think I think millions of people thought of it long before um, I did. But anyway, did you see CNN yesterday morning? No, but you in our me stu- about in it. our studio with you asking asking Elizabeth Warren about whether or not she was going to support Kamala Harris. Was I on TV? Did I miss no, it? No, unfortunately, it was not you. Oh, okay, and, but it was your question. Okay, and the lead story on CNN. But go ahead. Okay. Well, anyway, she, we asked we asked or I asked uh, Senator Warren uh, if she was going to back Harris for vice president in twenty twenty four, and here's what she said. You know, I I really want to defer to what makes Biden comfortable on his team. But they need, they have to be a team, and my sense is they are. I don't mean that by suggesting I think there are any problems. I think they are. So anyway, uh, it, it, the age of President Biden makes people's feelings about Kamala Harris huge. Uh, and it, it, I don't know. It's um, even Elizabeth Warren is hesitating. Well, no question, Elizabeth. Uh, you know, Marjorie, you got her to step in it there. Uh, congrats on making national news. <laughs> It was Listen, an accident. She, she issued a statement <laughs> clarifying that within hours. She's called Kamala Harris's office, spoken with her chief of staff, and apologized. It was sloppy. She stepped in it, no question. Kamala Harris um, won't call her back, according to CNN. That's troubling, is it not, Jesse? You know, that's going to wear off real fast once you get into campaign mode, and you need to make sure that Elizabeth Warren is activating her incredibly devoted supporters to get out there and support the ticket. There is no question. Joe Biden is not a spring chicken and people are going to have to feel real confident in the vice president uh, being there. I I think that she has a track record that once the White House and the campaign mechanism starts communicating what a leader she has been on abortion rights, for example, she has been out there, out there, out there really strongly um, that I think this won't end up being a problem. But I think you're right, Marjorie. People are saying that they want to understand why they should feel comfortable with the vice president. I think there are clear reasons why they should. And it's just about telling that story. I'm sure you agree with that, uh, Jennifer. Do you know? (laughs) First of all, I I want to also congratulate Marjorie for being an amazing journalist. That's uh, right. Thank you. Of the year. There you go. was pretty impressive. Um, That that was super impressive. Um, I, you know, I think, I think, I think that Elizabeth Warren actually spoke the truth. I think that maybe she stepped in it, but it was a moment of how do I lie about this one? And when you're a politician and you find it difficult to even tell a little white lie, then you know that there's trouble in paradise. And so, you know, listen, Kamala Harris has not shown up at the border. We have a gigantic border crisis that even Democratic members of Congress at the border are horrified at. And she's supposed to be the border czar. So, I mean, I can just stop right there because that is an incredible problem because that is not just immigration. That is crime. That is gangs. That is the... Um, you know, the coyotes, that is human trafficking, that is drugs, that is fentanyl, that is killing our children. So that is not just an immigration issue. That spans many, many topics. And I think that that's something that she's responsible for. And I'm sure that the administration is feeling the pressure um, from their own members about this. So can we move to local 
stuff Yeah, here. we should move to your favorite story of the day, Marjorie, I Which think. is my favorite story of the day, Diana DiSaglio? The, the auditor story yeah. is really okay. a we have great a newly elected, story. We have a newly elected state auditor uh, who's looking into the legislature. Tell us about this, Jesse, and the political peril she apparently faces, according to several pieces, one of them in the Boston Globe. Well, our, as you pointed out, our, our new state auditor has uh, has announced that she'll be following through on a campaign promise, right, to audit the state legislature. She talked about this on the campaign trail. It's not new news, and uh, she's made statements that she's going to be looking for documents and information from the legislature. It has unsurprisingly not been met with open arms from legislative leadership, but I, I think sunshine is the best medicine, and that doesn't mean anything's you know, rotten in the state of Denmark in the legislature. It just means that transparency is good. And Jim, you and I have talked about this. It's ridiculous that the public can't see how legislators vote in committee about whether or not they're advancing a piece of legislation. So there is room for improvement in our state house around transparency. I think the auditor is going to face an uphill battle. There's question about the legality of what she's trying to move forward from very, very thoughtful, well-respected folks like Jerry McDonough, who is a highly sought after legal mind in democratic political circles. But I think the core and used to be of, chief counsel in the auditor's office. Yes, he did. But he is highly respected and sought after yeah. by Democrats of all stripes. And, you know, I think her core goal of transparency in the building is nothing but good. OK, but let's give a little bit of background, Jennifer, before you weigh in. When uh, uh, then Representative DiZaglio from Methuen was in the legislature, she said she faced sexual harassment for a bunch of years. She was fired. There was a severance agreement she signed, which required her to sign a non-disclosure agreement, an NDA, that she then decided to break. And then essentially a campaign within the state Senate at that time against NDAs in the legislature. And the reason I find the story much sexier than Jesse is letting on is what clearly <laughs> not only is there a grudge from history, but even if there wasn't a grudge, your budget is determined by the legislature. I think I read this morning that uh, the proposal in the governor's budget was a four million dollar increase. I would say that uh, Diana DeZaglio's budget as auditor is going to be maybe eleven dollars at the end of this budget <laughs> process, assuming that she continues to go. And by the way, I don't think she has a constitutional right to audit the legislature. I wish she did, because I agree with Jesse that sunshine is the best disinfectant. But this is going to be a political war, is it not? One thousand percent. I mean, if this reads like it was a Republican auditor, right? I mean, this this is amazing from my perspective. Look, the, the legislature should have term limits. The legislature should have have sunshine shown on it. When I was when I first became chair, I would go to the legislature and go sit there in a perch and go watch what they were doing and watch how they would walk into the back corner office and and make deals and then come out and vote. I think it's disgusting and despicable that the Senate is not actually meeting in person, that they're still in their fuzzy bunny slippers at home taking votes, committee votes and formal votes on Zoom when, by the way, all of these morons get paid by taxpayer dollars. I, I totally <laughs> agree with her 1,000%. But, you know, like you said, Jim, one, it doesn't seem to be passing the constitutionality test, which, you know, is kind of a big thing. And number two, her budget is determined by said morons. So, you know, if that's the case, she has to play with them. And lastly, so to speak. and I think that, right, exactly. And, and so, you know, I think the former auditor, Suzanne Bump, also made this comment, which is that it's 
it's all, it also doesn't really pass a sniff test because she was just one of them. She was just in the legislature and now she's going after her own people. And there does seem to be a little bit of a conflict of interest there. So even though I love it on, on its face, I do think that she faces an uphill battle on this. Um, you know, cause it, it, it I think politically it's going to get her into a lot of trouble. You know, I'm reminded we're talking about this when the Boston housing court judge dare called, uh, then head of the Senate, Bulger, uh, a corrupt midget. What happened to his budget? It was gone. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe, I shouldn't say gone. It was diminished to almost nothing. You know, I just realized Friday online gambling was allowed. There should be an over-under on what her budget's going to be after (laughs) the legislature is done. You know what? But I admire her for trying. I mean, good for her. Hey, Jesse and Jennifer, it's great to see you both. Thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Okay, thank you very much for joining us today, both of you. We've been talking to Jesse Mermel. Uh, we've been talking to Jesse Mermel. She's founder and president of DeWitt Impact Group and a former Democratic candidate for Congress in Massachusetts' fourth congressional district. Uh, Nasour is the founder of the As in Pocket Jennifer. Book. Jennifer Nasour is the founder of the Pocketbook Project, former chair of the Massachusetts Republican Party, and a former candidate for Boston City Council. Coming up. Boston Globe columnist Renee Graham joins us to tell Jim, for the last time, (laughs) maybe that's Michelle Obama running for president. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. I'm Jim Browning, ahead on Boston Public Radio. Boston Globe columnist Renee Graham will be with us. We'll ask why everybody's obsessed with the idea of a Michelle Obama presidential run. That is, everyone except the former first lady herself. Then it's Matt Ruskin, director of a brand new movie out this Friday on Hulu, The Boston Strangler. The real-life story of two young women reporters on the heels of a serial killer. I'm Marjorie Egan. Pope Francis is celebrating 10 years at the helm of the Catholic Church. We'll get thoughts on this from the Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett Price. And if you missed last night's Oscars, Globe film critic Odie Henderson has you covered. He'll join us for a recap. All that ahead on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Welcome to our number two of Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Hello again, Jim. Hello again, Marjorie. I want to repeat, we will not be at the Boston Public Library tomorrow, even though it's our usual day, Tuesday, Tuesday and Fridays. It's just a precautionary thing because of snow. We told you earlier in the show we would see if we could confirm that Mayor Wu will be kind enough to join us out here in Brighton. And we just heard a few minutes ago she will. <clears throat> so, again, we will not be at the library tomorrow, but Mayor Wu will be with us for an hour for Ask the Mayor. For, from 11 to 12. We're joined now on Zoom by Renee Graham, opinion columnist, associate editor for the Globe's op-ed page. We steal so many of her ideas that we decided we, we might as well invite her on. <laughs> Why not? She also That's writes right. the Globe's outtakes newsletter. I want to apologize on behalf of both me and Marjorie for our sins. Renee, well, good we, to we, see you. Yeah. I, I, I'm happy to see you both. And you know what? I'm, I'm okay with it. Good. I think <laughs> if you join the work, then... 
have at it. We were hoping well, you would be. We, we we should define that a little bit. We don't we don't totally steal. We do say that Renee wrote them. Sometimes we just steal we all do. the ideas and debate Sometimes about them. We so do. we're glad we finally got you in here so you can talk about um, your column yourself, Renee. L- let's start with this one you wrote about of Fox News and Tucker Carlson's big lies. People know Fox News could be in trouble. They've got this massive lawsuit pending against them where it, it looks by, by in internal communications that the people that like Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram knew there was not widespread fraud, but they kept saying it on the air anyway. And you asked whether it was going to make any difference if they do get in big trouble. And you talked about a Dennis Leary stand-up routine. What'd you say? You know, years ago, Dennis Leary was a committed smoker. That was his thing. And he did this whole routine about the fact that there was this idea that, oh, if you make the packaging of cigarettes seem more dangerous, then that will deter smokers. And he said, you could literally call it tumors and it wouldn't matter to people. They're still going to smoke. And in fact, they might go, oh, my God, I can't wait to get my hand on those cigarettes called tumors. And his idea and what he said was, we're smokers. We're addicted. And that's the way I see Fox News viewers. I don't think it's going to matter that much. What they want is for a network to tell them what they want to hear. I don't think they care about what Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity really believe. But so long as they're towing the company line about Trump, about the big lie, I think they're going to hang on. How much does that make you nervous? Even Obviously, you have a trouble with the underlying lie, the big lie, as you say. Put aside the content for a second. How do you relate to the, the, the power and dominance of any news station that doesn't deal in fact and has such power? Well, I don't think Fox is a news station. It's, it's peddling propaganda. You know, I, I, I call it the communications team for Republican extremism yeah. and disinformation. So, yeah. you know, I don't think the idea that somehow they are violating the great tenets of journalism is even at play here. They don't care about the tenets of journalism. They never really have. What they care about are advertisers and ratings. And again, so long as they keep spewing the same sort of nonsense and people keep tuning into it, then that's what they're going to do. And obviously with this, they felt they had no choice because... The way Fox, the way that Trump went after them after the 2020 election, they got very nervous that their audience could start, you know, being siphoned off in different directions. And so they made this decision. This is what we're going to say. It doesn't matter if we believe it, but our viewers believe it. And this is what they want to hear. And that's exactly what we're going to feed them. You know, we've had a couple of people on who write about the human psyche who have done research that say the more you try to convince people like you're describing, the addicted, the uh, more set they get in their beliefs. So one, do you subscribe to that notion? And if you do, is your view, we just write them off and try to work with everybody else? Or is there some lifeline that could be thrown to that group of folks? I mean, it's a good question, Jim. I mean, I, I think there's a way that sometimes people come around, but nobody wants to be hectored. And nobody wants to be told that that thing you're doing or that thing you believe is wrong. You know, there's there, maybe there's a way to work with someone like that. I honestly don't know what it is, but I do think there's something that, you know, I used to say that uh, Trump voters were like a person who got a bad neck tattoo. 
that even though they now believed it was a bad idea, they were never going to admit that it was a bad idea because everyone told them it would be a bad idea. And I think it's the same thing. I think it's, you know, they've bought into this. And what are they saying now? If they look at it and go, wow, you were right and I was wrong. Trump is horrible. Trumpism is destructive. We must save democracy. I just don't think that people are going to come around. And so when you've had Fox for the last few years, the station that all these people watch, essentially confirming what they've always believed, it just makes them sort of double down and triple down in, in their beliefs. We're talking to Renee Graham from the Boston Globe. Now, <clears throat> Renee Graham from the Boston Globe, Jim Browdy over here has said about a million times that Michelle Obama is going to run for president of the United States. Would you like to send him straight, please? Well, first of all, I am not just saying it for 2024. <laughs> I said it repeatedly for 20. Uh, 20, too, yes, by did. the way, and I might have been Hasn't wrong happened. in 2020. <clears throat> so Why take it away, wrong? Renee. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go there. You know, you, you see it on social media all the time. Believe black women, listen to black women. Michelle Obama has said it repeatedly. She is not interested in running for political office of any kind, let alone the presidency. She saw it up close. Why would she want to subject herself to this? Exactly. She well, knows what it's going to be. It's just, I don't see it happening. You know, there was a black man who she knows pretty well who said on Meet the Press to Tim Russert a few months before he ran for the presidency that he was not going to run for the presidency. And that, of course, would be her husband, Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you wrote the thing you wrote in the middle of your piece saying this is just not going to happen. What undergirds such arguments is the annoying implication, I think you're talking to me, that black women <laughs> exist only to save America from its worst political impulses. I, I would like to think that that's not what's motivating me. I think what motivates me is she's one of the few, I was going to say politicians, but of course you're going to say she's not a politician. I would argue she is a politician or at least close enough who has the ability to appeal to a far broader spectrum of, of people than almost anybody in American political life today. Am I one of the people you're talking to there? Well, I wasn't speaking about you, Jim, per se. <laughs> but <laughs> but, <laughs> but there is something in that. We, we know that this happens almost every election cycle. When things are teetering on the edge and people kind of look to black women to save America because they are the Democrats' most consistent and loyal constituency. And so I think there's a sense that, oh, my God, we're in trouble again. You know, only 37 percent of Democrats are really into the idea of Joe Biden running for reelection. What can we do? And the nation turns its lonely eyes to Michelle Obama, who just says no. As she's been saying for more than a decade, she I, I honestly feel like if she wanted it, she would have gone after it by now. But I think the time that she was in the White House as first lady and the way her husband was treated and what her children went through and what she went through, you know, the way that the racism and sexism and misandroir, which is the idea of, of the intersectionality of racism and sexism, there is no way she's going to put herself through that. And I also believe when she says she would not put her children through that again, that they did it. And that when you run for office, you're not the only person running. It's everybody. It's a family enterprise. And I just think that that's something she's not interested in doing again. And also, and also just to say, if you're Michelle Obama, who would want to be president? I'd rather be Michelle Obama than be president. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of racism and sexism, is it just racism and sexism that's, that's causing so much a second guessing of Kamala Harris, the vice president, or is it something more? 
because uh, you th- this is becoming a big story now. Should Biden, uh, well, should Biden run because he's too old? And if he does run, sh- when everybody's going to be concerned about us being too old, is Kamala Harris the person that should be on the ticket with him? You know, I think there's an, an, uh, certainly an extra amount of scrutiny that uh, Kamala Harris gets by being um, not only the first black woman in this position, not only the first South Asian woman in this position, but being the first woman in this position. Um, and there's, there's a lot of like, what has she done? And I feel like I keep saying this over and over again. She is a vice president. A vice president cannot get in front of the president. Their job is to be with the president, perhaps even a little bit behind where the president is. But she can't set policy. She can't be out there out front beyond where Joe Biden already is. And so I do think that there's an unfair scrutiny on her because she is a woman, because she's a woman of color, um, and that somehow it's exacerbated by the fact that you do have a president who is 80 years old. And what does that mean? And when you talk about someone being a heartbeat from the presidency, that has a very different meaning when the president is 80, you know, and 82 years old by the time the election comes around. So I think that's part of it. Um, and, I, and I can't really recall other vice presidents. Were people doing this to Mike Pence? Were people talking about what is Mike Pence up to and what is Mike Pence doing? And what does this matter? Because Trump was no spring chicken either. Mm-hmm. But I don't remember that same conversation about about Mike Pence. So, yeah, I do think that that sexism and, and racism play a pretty big part of this. Not only no spring chicken, but uh, Biden's pretty fit as compared to Donald Trump, who is anything uh, uh, but fit. But the reality is, if Biden runs, and I'm one of the three people who not only thinks Michelle Obama is going to be a candidate, but that Joe Biden is not going to run. So you can really be happy with that, Renee Graham. But uh, uh, Hmm. uh, if assuming he runs, there is going to be a colossal amount of scrutiny, fair or unfair, on Kamala Harris. How does that play out in your estimation? I mean, I don't know if you're aware, we were talking about this in the last half hour. The question that started all this publicly, Marjorie Egan, Elizabeth Warren was in our studio a couple of months ago. We've gone over this, Jim. I know, but Renee hasn't been part of that discussion. And uh, uh, Marjorie said, are you going to support Biden in the next, uh, if he runs? Yes. One word. Are you going to support Kamala Harris as his vice president? She equivocated. And even though the next day she did put out a statement about it, it's become the centerpiece of every story in the Washington Post and elsewhere about how Democrats are doubting. Uh, Kamala Harris as a, as a candidate. How do you think it plays out if if he runs and keeps her, as I assume he will, as his VP? Well, I mean, let me just first say I wish that Senator Warren had not equivocated because she gave this story energy it didn't really need. It's always been bubbling under the surface anyway, but to have someone um, like Senator Warren make that statement and kind of hem and haw a little bit about what she will do in terms of supporting Kamala Harris was was not a good look. And I'm happy she's tried to clean it up, but it, it feels like too little too late. Um, it, Biden has to keep Harris. That's That's really all there is to it. It would be absurd for him to think that he could somehow dump Kamala Harris and not alienate a constituency he desperately needs to get back to the White House. You know, if his whole thing was, you know, I would pick a woman as a black woman as vice president. Okay, you've done that. You can't say, okay, thank you for getting me there. Now I need a white guy on the ticket or someone else. That is not going to fly. You know, and Joe Biden knows that. Joe Biden, who, by the way, I do think is going to run. But there's no way he can he can dump Harris and expect to be turned to the White House in 2024. Are you troubled by a guy who'd be 86 at the end of his second term, Renee Graham? I am, frankly. I mean, look, so I, I. I'm a person. I'm, I'm a person who actually thinks there should be age limits on so running for president. I. If there's a minimum, which is 35, then there should be a maximum. So I'd say 70 
should be the cutoff. If you can't get it done in 35 years, it is just <laughs> not meant to be. We're but talking this... Ernie Graham from the Boston Globe. <clears throat> so a- another fascinating piece you wrote, and I admit this never occurred to me, but it certainly occurred to you, was the intersectionality of hate, Ernie Graham. What did you really mean? Really important column, yeah. You know, I was talking with Amar Jones, who's the, the CEO and founder of, of Translash Media, and we just started talking about how the feeling of being attacked from all sides, how you felt attacked as a Black person, how you feel attacked as a queer person, how you feel attacked, you know, what's happening with women's rights, all of these different things. And she began to talk about this idea that, you know, the right wing fights intersectionally and they need to be fought in the same way. And it's true. If you look at everything that's happening, you know, it's abortion, it's LGBTQ rights, it's book bans, it's curriculum, it's everything you could name. And it's this multi-front attack. And if you look at the history of sort of hate, not just in America, but in the world, it's always been intersectional. You know, the Nazis didn't just go after the Jews. They went after the LGBTQ community. They went after the, the European Roma. If you look at the Ku Klux Klan, they hated Jews, they hated Blacks. If you look at what's happening now with groups like Patriot Front and NSC 131, they're going, same thing, they're going after um, Jewish organizations, they're going after trans organizations and trans people. It's always worked that way. Hate is never singular. It's never siloed off. But the problem with those who fight it is they try to fight these things one at a time. And you can't do it that way because while you're paying attention to what's happening here, something else is exploding over there because the people you're against are doing all of that at the same time. And that's and that's a plan. That's a strategy to sort of overwhelm, to sort of flood the zone so you don't really know what to do first. And it almost paralyzes you. And what is the reason that that uh, in some cases can be very effective? I think it's effective for the very reason I said you you don't know where to go if you have if you if you're in your house and you have a leak in the bathroom and the kitchen and the living room which leak do you tend to first yeah. Yeah. Right. You you can't ignore the one because that one is going to create, create more problems. You can't do it one at a time. You have to figure a way to do all of it. But if you're on but if you're that person and everything is coming at you at one time, like I said, it wears you out. It it doesn't even numb you. It just paralyzes you because you don't know where to start first, you know, and you have to then look within those own groups are, you know, are, you know, are black people going to fight the same way? Are they going to fight anti-Semitism? Are Jews going to fight what's happening to trans people? Then you have to have all these groups on the same page and see the hate as similar and not an individual problem. And so that's why I make the, the comment in the column that all of these groups need to tend to each other while also tending to their own house, because all the houses are on fire at this point. You know, it, uh, uh, there, it's quite often, Renee Graham, that I criticize the I'm not alone. Obviously, the Democratic Party is not being nearly as good at politics as the Republicans are. But as I was reading your column and think and listening to you a second ago, this is one of the areas where I think, if not literally, but at least figuratively and operationally, most Democratic leaders do say an injury to one is an injury to all, don't they? I mean, even if they don't do it wildly effectively, they sort of get what you're hinting, not hinting at, what you're touching on in this column, no? I mean, that's, I mean, that is it. You know, if, if one person's rights is deprived, that harms everyone. You have to see it that way. So, you know, they're understanding now what I think the right wing has always yeah. understood and what the far right has yeah. always understood. It's not just one issue. It's not like, oh, 
well, that issue of anti-Semitism happened over there, but that's not going to affect me as a black woman. Of course, it's going to affect me as a black woman, because in most cases, it's the same enemy. So you have to look at it that way. And, I, and it's good that Democrats are, are, are getting it slowly but surely, but they're starting to get it. We're talking to Renee Graham from the Boston Globe. Now, we're going to play a clip from something that our young listeners may uh, not have uh, be familiar with. There was a guy by the name of Ralph Edwards who was the host of a very popular show called This Is Your Life, where they would surprise someone, and then everybody this person ever knew would show up. Their teacher from grammar school, the, the guy who ran the, the uh, dry cleaner, whatever it was. Well, here is Ralph Edwards hosting a This Is Your Life with one of the great comedians of his era, Flip Wilson, but not as Flip Wilson, but as Geraldine. Here it is. This is too much. Yeah, go, come on, don't, don't, don't touch me. Don't you touch me, Ralph. You don't know me that well. You haven't been in my life but two minutes, honey. Geraldine, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm Ralph Edwards. I don't care if you Prince Edwards. It's <laughs> a pretty good line. Why did I play that, uh, Renee Graham? Um, in my newsletter last week, I, I wrote about Flip Wilson's Geraldine Jones. And Geraldine Jones was a drag character that made Flip Wilson a star. Yeah. Uh, it was always really the centerpiece of a variety show he had on the 1970s and the early 70s called The Flip Wilson Show. But you tuned in to see Geraldine. Mm. And it was Flip Wilson playing this sort of you know confident, sassy, outspoken black woman. And he'd have on the latest fashions and the wig would be on point. I mean, it was just amazing. He was never mocking Geraldine, Mm -hmm. you know? And so for me, and I was a kid, I was in like the single digits at that point. You know, I watched how my parents watched it and I got to watch it as well. My parents, who were very strict about bedtimes, let me stay up past my bedtime to see the Flip Wilson show so I could see Geraldine. And, you know, there's no other way to put it. Drag ruled primetime television. There were no protests. Nobody wanted it banned. If Geraldine had come to your local library to read books to your kids, people would have lined up around the block. And, you know, that was just was just sort of amazing to me and thinking back about, you know, because someone had asked me when the first time I remember seeing drag and originally I said, Bugs Bunny, because for some reason, Bugs Bunny was mm-hmm. always in a dress. Yeah. <laughs> but then I thought about it. I thought, yeah. no, it was it was Geraldine. My mother would walk around the house imitating Geraldine. I mean, that's the thing. It was understood as art and performance. And I know I even think on some level it appealed to me because, you know, I was a tomboy growing up and I didn't like dresses and I preferred to wear pants. And it probably in the back of my mind was very soothing to see that a man could wear a dress and everyone would be fine with that. And the reason that changed in current times is because of your flooding the zone notion. Is that not the case, not the explanation? It's become I mean, I think, just... I, I mean, I think what's happened a lot with, with the trans community is I think there's been a lot of backlash to visibility. You know, I think that always happens. I think anytime a group stands out and says, we belong here, we deserve our rights, there's a backlash. And the backlash to the trans community has been absolutely ferocious and it's been dangerous. And, you know, this isn't just, you know, happening in Tennessee or happening in Florida. It's happening in multiple states. There are hundreds of bills out there right now, a lot of them directly targeting the trans community and, and even beyond that, trans kids. So, you know, but again, it's flooding the zone. You know, two things, by the way, speaking of Tennessee, there's a great story over the weekend about the uh, uh, lieutenant, I think it's the lieutenant governor there, 
who was one of the leaders on the anti-LGBTQ legislation, was uh, turned out was on an Instagram yeah. site of a uh, uh, a gay guy who was fabulous looking, and of course he's the one leading the charge. But I, I want before you go, I want to test out a Marjorie Egan theory on you, Renee. She thinks the cruelty of DeSantis on the most vulnerable people on the planet, uh, trans people, for example, amongst others in Florida, dooms him nationally. And gay gay people in general. Right, I understand. But because we are a kinder people than uh, DeSantis is used to. Do you subscribe to that notion or are you more pessimistic? I mean, you know, I once thought Donald Trump couldn't be president. So I don't even, you know, I mean, so I'm not even going to say that it can't happen. He can't be the nominee and, and, you know, God help us all can't be president. But I think at the end of the day, what happens with someone like DeSantis, where it's just like, you know, woke, wokeism to woke or not to woke. I mean, all of that nonsense, I think people are going to realize has nothing to do with their own lives. You know, how is that helping them economically? How is that helping with health care? At some point, people make that separation and say, this is nonsense. Do I think he's going to have some support? Of course. I mean, it's America, right? That's going to happen. But do I think the country as a whole cares about the only issues that that Ron DeSantis is talking about? I don't. I really don't. We hope you're right. Renee Graham, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for your yeah, time thank today. You. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much. You thank you Thanks for having your, me on. Well, see we appreciate again, it. We thank you for your great columns in The Globe. Really uh, love to read you every time so you're there. We. We've been speaking with Renee Graham, who is, of course, an opinion columnist for the Boston Globe, as well as associate editor for The Globe's op-ed page. And she also writes The Globe's Outtakes newsletter. Thanks a lot for being with us, Renee. We appreciate it. Coming up. A new movie examines the Boston Strangler case from a new angle. The two women reporters who broke the story for the Boston Record American. Director Matt Ruskin joins us to discuss. He's next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And in 1962, Loretta McLaughlin was a reporter at the Boston Record American when she connected a series of murders for the first time, the now infamous much-written-about Boston Strangler murders. A new Hulu film out at the end of this week tells us more, how McLaughlin and her fellow journalist Jean Cole, another woman, or girl as they were called at the time, pieced together one of the biggest crime stories in the city's history. Matt Ruskin, who grew up in Watertown, by the way, is writer-director of the Boston Strangler. He joins us now. Matt, congratulations. Great to meet you. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. It was really wonderful to watch this late at night on Saturday night. I was all (laughs) beside myself. Uh, But but before we get to, to, to your great movie, what do you think of the Oscar picks last night? Were they the right ones? What do you think? Um. You know, I, I really loved Everything Everywhere. I thought it was a, just an exceptional film, so it was nice to see them win. You like that one? Would you? Do you vote or do you not? No. Would you have voted for that film? I I probably would have. Yeah. yeah. Okay. One more thing about the Oscars. Do you think the Banshees of Inisherin, which I went to see, and I'm Irish, so I thought I was all excited about it. Did we really have to go to the graphic lengths to to break up the friendship that we saw in that movie? Everybody said it was wonderful, and all I could think of was, oh, my God. 
I'm embarrassed to say I haven't seen it yet. Well, don't worry. I mean, if, if don't eat your lunch before you go see it. That would be my advice <laughs> to, you, to you, Matt. Um, but anyway, you know, we, we, we are, we're all from, well, Jim's from Philadelphia, but I'm from around here and you're from around here. How much did you know uh, growing up in Watertown about the, the Boston Strangler and all the notoriety? Well, it's funny, you know, having grown up here, I had heard about the Boston Strangler in a very abstract sense my whole life, but I didn't know anything about the case. And then several years ago, I was looking for um, something new to write about, and I started reading everything that I could about the Boston Strangler, and I discovered this incredibly layered murder mystery at the heart of the story, a lot of which was not covered in the 1968 Tony Curtis film. And so I thought there was, you know, the, the basis for a potentially really interesting film. And then I discovered these reporters, Loretta McLaughlin and Jean Cole, who were among the first reporters to connect the murders and break the story. And they actually gave the Boston Strangler her, his name during the course of their reporting. And I love journalism films. I really respect and admire good journalism. And I thought, you know, telling the story through their perspective could be a really compelling way to revisit this case. You know, uh, by the way, if at any point since the film is now till Friday, and we were lucky enough, thanks to you, to see it over the weekend, we start to give away too much, feel free to yell at us and tell us to stop. And I mean that <laughs> sincerely. You know, I said to Marty, I didn't know if I was too embarrassed to even mention this. I knew Loretta McLaughlin when I moved here 30-plus years ago. She was the editorial page editor of the Boston Globe at that time, and she was terrific. But as I admitted to Marjorie over the weekend, I had absolutely no idea that she had broken one of the biggest stories in the history, not just of Boston, one of the biggest crime stories, one of the first serial killer stories in America. Yeah, it's really incredible. Um, You know, and this is at a time... In the early 1960s, this was a decade before the ser- the term serial killer yeah. had even been coined. It all really started for me. I found this um, photograph online of Loretta McLaughlin and her reporting partner, Jean Cole, um, you know, out on a street corner uh, investigating one of the crime scenes. And it was just such an interesting picture. You know, they were wearing their pearls and they had these high heels on, but they were out <laughs> on the street reporting on this this really brutal murder and um i wanted to you know know more about who they were and you know there was very little information available about them um so i read jean cole's obituary and it mentioned that she had two daughters and so i did some amateur sleuthing and i looked them up on facebook and one of them had a facebook profile she had one photograph posted and in the photo, she had her arm around my friend Lana. So I called my friend Lana and I said, how do you know this woman? That's and she said, you know, why are you on my mom's Facebook page? Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> so she, it turns out her grandmother was Jean Cole, someone who she had revered. And so through her, I was able to talk to Loretta and Jean's kids and really get a sense of who they were as people and, and who they were as journalists. And Really, at that point, I felt like oh, this was a, a story I really needed to try to tell. That's the voice well, of Matt Ruskin. He's the writer and director of The Boston Strangler. It's available on Hulu, streaming as of Friday. You know, I, I must interject here that I went to work at the Boston uh, Record American, which be, then became the Boston Herald, <clears throat> when it be, went to a tabloid, not long after Gene Cole uh, uh, left, retired. And... Uh, 
Nobody told me that she was a legendary uh, really? reporter on, wow. on the Herald. She wasn't a legend in the newsroom. And and all those years later, uh, let me tell you, uh, women and cops uh, were kind of like the beat that didn't happen well into the 90s. We weren't supposed to be able to report on them. And Eddie Corsetti that you mentioned in that movie was was still with the Boston Herald when I was there. And he was the guy that was down meeting all the cops in the bar rooms and getting all the scoop, you know. And so huh. um, they were certainly pioneers, but it, it was not all that different all those many years later in fact we should play that great when we talk about our local guy chris cooper that we all love who's that been was with in, us yep he's great um, academy award winner for the adaption yeah there's a there's a great moment in 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 the movie where uh kira uh kira knightley's character you know laura Loretta mclaughlin um first pitches a story about the strangler to her boss jack mcclain who of course is played by chris cooper here it is jack i think i found something Three women were strangled over the last two weeks. I don't see the interest. These are nobodies. Who do you think our readers are? And that's just it. Why would anybody go around killing three nobody women? And how do you plan to find that out? Well, let me profile the victims. <laughs> see if there's any connection. Kid, you're not covering a homicide. Why not? Because you don't have any experience covering homicides. Well, how am I supposed to get any experience if you won't give me a shot? No. Oh, come on. It's slow. I'll do it on my own time. All right. But she's still on the lifestyle desk. She's still on the lifestyle desk covering new toasters, new by the toasters. way. Hey, Matt Ruskin, <laughs> when you write uh, at the beginning inspired by a true story, I never know what the filmmaker means. What did, what did you mean when you uh, put those words on the screen? You know, those that language is determined by the studio, but, you know, all of these films are very much you know, um, you take a true story, you're, you do your best to try and honor the spirit of who these people were and what the story was, but invariably you have to take liberties just to try and tell a story that spans several years in, into, you know, the format of a feature film. So things are simplified, time can be condensed. Um, so it's really just to indicate that this is not a documentary film, that some creative license was required. But you filmed a lot of this in Boston. So I was trying to figure out some of those scenes look like Beacon Hill. Some of those scenes look like the back bay. I couldn't, were they both or wh- where, were we, where were we looking at? Yeah, no, it was great to be able to, to shoot in Boston. Um, we shot a lot in the South End. We shot some in Back Bay um, and really all over the city. Uh, so it was great to be able to bring the film home back to Boston and, in some of those old neighborhoods where, as you guys know, the, the old brownstones, that architecture hasn't changed in over 100 right. years. Right. Once you line the street with those old cars, it was amazing to see those neighborhoods transform. You know, we sh- you know what I realized? For young listeners, we're all talking about the Boston Strangler because the two of us lived through it, even though we were little kids. You obviously have studied it meticulously. Spend 60 seconds and just... Tell the story of uh, what happened here, this serial killer before there were serial killers, as you said, Matt. Yeah, so in the summer of 1962, uh, there were a string of, of, of elderly women who were found uh, strangled to death in their homes, often left with a, a decorative um, garret around their neck. So in, in most cases, it was silk stockings. Um, some of them happened in the outskirts of the city and it was a bit sporadic. You know, there would be, I think there was 
three murders in the summer of 62. And then there, you know, nobody, there were no victims for several months. And then the pattern changed. It's at one point, um, younger victims started to turn up. So it was this very puzzling and very horrifying uh, murder mystery that really gripped the city. And, and this was, um, you know, one of the first serial killers during the era of mass media in the United States. So, you know, the seven newspapers at the time in Boston, this really um, dominated the headlines and, and seemed to, to grip, um, you know, every, every uh, corner of the city. What was it? What was the the person? What they call this person? The butcher? What was he called initially before he was the Boston Strangler? They thought it was some. There was the the Phantom Strangler, the Silk Stocking Killer. Uh, there were a number of different names. Can you say yeah. who gave Boston Strangler? Who coined the term Boston Strangler? You prefer not? No, that that was um, Loretta actually gave the Boston Strangler his name um, in one of her stories, and that was the name that stuck. You know what else I loved? Again, this is this is being you focus on journalism and and these these women, Loretta McLaughlin and Jean Cole, is as you mentioned, these were mothers. They had families, and Loretta McLaughlin's husband is getting increasingly ticked off <laughs> about the amount of time she's spending doing this. I don't know if that was something that you you learned in your reporting, or if that was a little bit of fictionalization. What what was the deal there? It, you know, in in talking to Loretta's daughter. Um, I discovered that they actually, they met at journalism school. They went to BU um, and he was actually incredibly supportive of his career. Uh, he really admired the work that she did. And anytime you find those little details that, that cut against type, that cut against expectation, I, I would really want to work those in. So, you know, it was not the cliched 1950s husband who just wanted his wife to stay at home. Um, so I thought that was really an interesting detail um, but my understanding through talking with Loretta's daughter was that um, as Loretta became more and more consumed with this story, it it put strains on their relationship. And, yeah, I, I won't give too much away beyond well, that. Well, I, I can see where a particular holiday and you're hosting a particular yeah. festive evening, you might have been a little upset when the hostess disappears. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, Matt Ruskin, do you have a thing about murders? And the reason I ask you that is the only film of yours I've seen, which I love, was Crown Heights. And it, people should see it because it's a story that's been repeated in our jurisdiction in Boston repeatedly with the Sean Ellis's and everything else. People who spend virtually their whole adult life in jail for a crime, a heart, the worst crime that they did not commit. Do you have a special, I don't mean this facetiously, do you have a special thing for murders or no, do you think? No, you know, for me, it all it all starts with with character, with with people. Um, I had heard um, a radio interview on NPR on a show called This American Life. Oh, of course. About this guy who was wrongfully convicted and his friend who spent 20 years trying to get him out of prison. And I was just incredibly moved by their story and their friendship. And so for me, that was the basis for wanting to make that film. And I think similarly here, once I discovered these reporters and the incredible lives that they led, that was the basis for my interest in, in telling the story of the Boston Strangler. You know what I wondered, uh, uh, Matt Ruskin, how come it's on Hulu on TV? Is it because of we're not going to the movies as much post-pandemic, or what's the deal? 
Uh, those are decisions that are made way above my head. Okay. But clearly, clearly there's a trend that, you know, the business model is changing. Um, I think since the pandemic, a lot of um, these types of films are not performing as well. Although I don't think that was the reason for the decision. I just think that the streaming services have become so prominent. Yeah. That the business model is really changing. Yeah, I was thinking about that last night at the Academy Awards, how many people I know that haven't seen any of the movies in the theater. You know, even Maverick, Top Gun, the Tom Cruise movie, which is, is one you really should see in the theater. I think a lot of people just watched it when it came on TV. Yeah, but Jimmy Kimmel made the point last night that Tom Cruise and uh, the director of Avatar, Cameron, Cameron, uh, James, James Cameron, Cameron. who had been urging people to go to the theaters more than anybody else, chose not <laughs> to go to the theater last night for the awards, <laughs> I guess because they weren't personally uh, uh, nominated. So since Marjorie and I are dancing around so we don't blow the suspenseful part of the uh, this thing, is there more you want our listeners to know that you're comfortable sharing with people, Matt? Yeah, I mean, I, I would just say I appreciate you not... Um, wanting to give away too much of the film, but as soon as you hang up, we're going to tell people everything, by the way. (laughs) So so don't be so nice about it. Go ahead. You know, when I started reading about this a few years ago, I discovered this, this incredible murder mystery and it, um, you know, was full of unexpected twists and turns. And and that's why I thought it would make a really compelling film. And and I hope the audience feels the same way. It is. And by the way, Kieran Knightley is fabulous. Not that I'm a critic. Chris Cooper, who's fabulous and absolutely everything is fabulous. And so the other players, but they were just terrific. So can we get to the most important thing? If you grew up in Watertown, what do you think of the Watertown Diner? I love the Watertown. So there's the New Yorker Diner in Watertown, yeah. and then there's the Deluxe Town Diner, which has undergone, um, you know, some changes in the years. But I'm talking I, I about like the Deluxe, both. where when you sit on the bench, you fall through almost to the floor. That's the one <laughs> yeah. I'm talking about. Did you grow up as a kid doing that, or what? I, I grew up going to both of those diners, and, and I love them both, and I'm glad they're still there. So let's get back to the movie for a second, though. I mean, this reminded me a lot, of, of course, of Spotlight. It yeah. was about reporters, and it was about um, <clears throat> corruption, and there was some not co- real corruption, but certainly uh, dysfunction that you pointed to in terms of um, the uh, police department, and there was corruption, obviously, at the Catholic Church there. Um, how much was that movie playing in your head? You know, I think that's, I think it's a great film. Um and so, you know, there's a ton to aspire to in looking at that film. Um, but it just felt like such a different subject matter, such different tone and, and a very different period. So, you know, I think I look more closely at movies like All the President's Men, the way they yeah. photograph the newsroom in that movie. I think no one's done it better. And so we looked at that all the time. Um and a movie like Zodiac. Uh, oh, yes. That was this very long story of, you know, obsession and trying to uncover the identity of a serial killer. And and the tone and the feel of that film, I think, were sort of much closer references for us. Okay, so when you had the reporters going into the Boston Globe, that was not the book. Was that, was that, let's play, name the building in Boston. Was it the Suffolk County Courthouse or was it something else? You mean the police the station? Outside, the outside the, of the Boston mean, Globe. Oh, they, they went in the Globe? I thought they did. Maybe I'm mistaken. Oh, was it the police department they were supposed to be going in, not the uh, Boston Globe building? I thought it was the Boston Globe building. 
uh, when the commissioners have it giving a press conference. Yeah, yeah, or, that was at the police. So the the beginning of the film, we tried to recreate the old Record American building. Okay. And then you know, which ultimately became um, part of the Herald. And where was uh, the old Record American building? I don't even know. Post Office Square. Exactly. Yeah. It's okay. Downtown. Okay. Um, right on that square, and then. Um, you know, and then we dip, we found the old Ben Franklin Institute in the South End. Sure. We re- re- redressed to look like the old police headquarters. That's pretty great. <laughs> Let's play one more clip before we uh, say goodbye to Matt here. This is a bit of sound from the trailer of Hulu's as of Friday, this coming Friday, The Boston Strangler. Another woman was strangled, just came over the wire. I'm killed in the follow-up. You don't have a story. How many women have to die before it's a story? They just confirmed number four. Police aren't talking. Never seen them this tight-lipped about anything. I don't care if it's one killer or four. We're going to catch whoever did this. Do you have any suspects? Boston police, hands on the wall. Matt, congratulations. It's great to meet you. Lots of luck with the film and hope to see you again sometime soon. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you very much, and and congratulations. It was really, um, you, you really did a great job. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Marjorie. Uh, We've been speaking with Matt Ruskin, writer and director of of The Boston Strangler. It's available streaming on Hulu March 17th, and a lot of it is filmed in Boston. I think you're really going to love it. And you may be like me and Jim. You went down a rabbit hole of reading about The (laughs) the Boston Strangler. I feel fully apprised of what, (laughs) what I think what went on there. Anyway, thanks again, Matt. Coming up. We're going to be joined by the Reverends Iron Monroe and Emmett Price for All Revved Up on Boston Public Radio. You're listening to 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Mardrigan. We will not, I repeat, we will not be at the Boston Public Library tomorrow. That's the bad news. We'll be back on Friday. The good news is Mayor Wu will join us in Brighton for Ask the Mayor at 11 o'clock. Again, we will not be at the library. We'll be in Brighton at our studio. Uh, There will be an Ask the Mayor with Mayor Wu, kind enough to switch to Brighton tomorrow at 11 o'clock. We're joined now by Irene Monroe and Emmett Price. Reverend Monroe is a syndicated religion columnist and the Boston voice for Detour's African-American Heritage Trail. Reverend Price is the founding pastor of the Community of Love Christian Fellowship that's in Alston and the inaugural dean of Africana Studies at Berkeley College of Music. Welcome to you both. Thanks Happy for Monday. Back. Yeah, thank you. thank you so much uh, for being here. So <clears throat> it is 10 years since Pope Francis uh, succeeded uh, Pope Listen Benedict. To her. That's our review yeah, already. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to start with Emmett. Because, but I will say one thing, though. I happened to be there. One of my kids was over doing the junior year abroad thing, and he was in Italy. He was right near the Vatican. So he got when the white smoke went off, he got to, like, a bunch of kids went down there to see what all the confusion was about. And, of course, it was that they'd chosen a new pope. And I remember going there. We just happened to be there the next day. And um, people say that, you know, the Italians don't really care, and people are, 
not religious and all this kind of stuff. It was so crowded that they had cops in the subway stations directing these throngs of people that were going there. And the first day we couldn't even get into Vatican Square, which holds about, I think, a quarter of a million people. They had jumbotrons on the street. So it was a a day of of great excitement. Uh, Ten years later, I don't know if it's still, uh, people are still as happy with the Pope. But in any case, it was, it it was a fascinating moment to see that, to what, see what this guy uh, meant to uh, people. But let's start with you, Emma, because I know, I think I know where Irene's going to go on the Pope in 10 years. (laughs) But what would you say he's accomplished, if anything, in the 10 years he's been running the show over there? Well, he's continued to elevate the status of the papacy as an icon, right? As a, as a celebrity, as a, as a Hollywood um, particularly in this in this nation, a Hollywooder, as it were, um, in terms of significant uh, reforms, um, I think he's done what many of us in this nation are sick and tired of: uh, being super aspirational and perhaps even intentional in aspiration, but not manifesting said aspirations. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of uh, uh, warm air. I'm not going to call it hot, but warm air <laughs> that he that he was you know offering when he first came in. Um, and 10 years later, uh, it's still, you know, lukewarm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. so, oh, you you're know. good. You're just, you know, you're just I, I, I want to stay with Emmett for yeah. one second. Speaking of, of warm air, the, mm. uh, the Washington Post analysis gave him pluses and minuses. We'll get to the minuses after uh, Irene, or we may get to the minuses with Irene. <laughs> but two of the areas where the writer gave him credit for having been a really important voice was on uh, migration issues uh, mm-hmm. uh, and on climate issues. Mm-hmm. And I have to say the person that Marjorie and I respect Bill McKibben. almost beyond mm-hmm. anybody else, Bill McKibben, on climate issues, thinks that what he had to say was hugely important. Well, he called the document Laudate Say when he talked right. about <clears throat> the climate emergency, yeah. the most important thing ever written Do you agree with that, climate. Emmett? Well, I think he's, ad- he's, he's approached them. I don't right. think he's addressed them. I mean, since right. the, the Pope is almost like the closest thing that we have in contemporary uh, culture uh, to the kings and queens of old who can uh, pronounce an edict and the whole world shifts because Mm -hmm. of that edict. And we haven't seen those. We've seen gestures and we've seen kind of ritualistic, you know, posturing. Lip service. But we haven't seen the manifestation (laughs) of the things that he articulated. Yeah, yeah. You know what? Okay, so let let me just say this here. I'm trying to find a balance and be measured because one of the things that I've been always grappling with with the Pope is, is he a titular head for church bureaucracy or just a failed visionary? You know, this is a Pope that has some kind of constraints or, or what I would say fetters around him. This is quite unusual for a living Pope to be serving with a living Pope. So I, I kind of understand some of the constraints because he has an old school, an old guard that very much love Benedict and want to maintain that kind of execution in terms of the church moving forth. And then he fails in understanding even the reason why he was chosen. So let's think about that. He was chosen, uh, an Argentinian, you know, uh, a priest, largely because the European population of the Catholic church was failing. So on some level, on a racial level, he failed because the whole idea was that he was to bring black and Asian and brown people to the church. 
he may have done some of that successfully. Uh, and even, even here in, in the United States, because many of these brown and, and black and Asian folks also might have migrated here. And so I think that his whole idea of picking um, uh, Gregory, Cardinal Gregory at, in DC was, was wonderful, but also strategic. For, for many levels. But I think that what, what has happened here is that while he's trying to expand, he's bringing, he doesn't understand that in, in, in these sort of black churches, uh, African churches, the homophobia, and doesn't understand the reason why it is rampant as it is, it comes from the Catholic church itself. So the church is trying to sort of balance at the same time, not do the kind of systemic change that would bring about it. I, I'll give you a classic example, the women's issue. He says, listen, I want more women in the church. Um, I, you know, we haven't done enough about it. I appreciate that. I'm still wondering, did he canonize, you know, Mother Teresa? Because to me, that's an, that's an easy, easy thing to do. And that's even a kind of token he can throw at us. But at the same time, he has this kind of, oh, I, I don't even know what to say, but he has this kind of recalcitrant, attitude about there's no we're blurring the lines between male and female not understanding that what he's doing is that how we define being male and female and the whole idea around gender fluidity and and sexual orientation is quite different but the fact that he won't accept that impedes the kind of women moving up at the church along with the violence that continues towards women because he said i'm against violence against women and look, we all know that he failed miserably when it comes to the church sex scandal. But yet now he says this. He says, well, I'm kind of loosey-goosey around celibacy. <laughs> yeah, I I know, I, just... Can we stay on that one for a second before we go to some of the – well, that is a broad topic. I really don't understand why he did say what he said. He basically <laughs> said, I'm open to the issue of not requiring celibacy <laughs> and for a, a variety of reasons. And then – I guess, Emmett, if he's open to it, and I think it's fairly obvious that it would at least address the shortage of priest issue, if nothing else, uh, and I think it would address some other things as well, uh, why not do it? I don't I, – I don't, why even say – if you're concerned about yeah. the conservative wing of the Catholic Church hierarchy, then don't say anything. What's the agenda? I don't get it. Well, you know, in our community, we call this – soft shoe stepping mm -hmm. right so it's 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 what happens when you're trying to play the middle and you're trying to give a signal to one side while holding the line for the other side and so you're wow. absolutely right why why would one even suggest something that you know yeah. you're not going to do well what is called Emmett and you know that it's talking from both sides of your mouth well okay? that's another way you know, to say it okay <laughs> I mean I mean that that so the thing around celibacy this is a who here because people know I mean it, it it's sort of like an open closet we know that the, that the priests we know that the priests are sexual all right but but the the, the problem with this is that if you want to say well listen I'm I'm really not strong fisted around celibacy then why then are you policing sexual behavior and 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 do you think here that if you uplift celibacy see this is this is the trick bag he's going to fix that if we don't if we do away with celibacy we will do away with child um pedophilia well that's a wrong that's 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 collapsing two different unrelated issues because if you are a pedophile 
gay or straight. We're talking about sexual violence mm -hmm. versus right. something around yep. celibacy yep. Mm -hmm. where people have a right to own their own bodies. But the other problem that I have with the, and, and let me just say this, while I won't give the, the Pope a failing grade, I definitely don't give him a high one either. Because this is the interesting thing, because if we had an understanding about the fluidity of, 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 of human sexuality and, a, and an embodied theology, why then are we having these Catholic groups a secrecy, it's secretly, <laughs> okay, on these gay apps, trying yeah. to see what gay priest is 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 dating, and then why did the priest, yeah. not the priest, but the pope said this, nuns and priests, I want you to delete the pornography off your cell phone. <laughs> so I mean, there there's a definite problem that could easily be wiped out. If, if there was an embrace of an embodied theology, if indeed you uplifted a celibacy, but also this here, you keep a church on the down low around secrecy and violence because you have this confessional booth here that keeps everything in the closet. I want to get Whether, back, I want to, get back to the we're confessional booth all these booth things. It, it, in once a you second. just say, I... Irene was referring to this story about from the Washington Post about this Catholic group spent millions on, uh, <laughs> on uh -oh. app data tracking gay priests. One particular guy, they looked, it turns out that he was a priest and he was on Grindr and they were spending money to sort of spy on, on the priests. And uh, I'm sorry, Jim, what were you going to get I, back I, to? I, want, I, mean, I, want, I don't know who, maybe it was Marjorie, maybe it was you. I know it wasn't Irene. <laughs> uh, a, a while ago, talked about how uh, this is a couple of years ago when we were having a conversation about the Catholic Church that a change in the church, uh, most leaders uh, see it with a really long view, not a long view like four years from now, like a long view like decades from now, if not more. Is it possible that 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 what Pope Francis says he believes and his strategy is this? The longer I stay, the more cardinals who share my worldview. That's world a big view, deal. That's a uh, big deal. Uh, are become uh, uh, cardinals. As a result, when I either retire or die, the likelihood is my successor will be someone who is uh, elevated in my image, and that after I have softened the landscape on all the issues where he's talked a good game but not acted, the way would be paved for the next man as pope. To do that is that uh, preposterous, uh, Emmett? No, before we get to it, Irene, it's not preposterous. <laughs> it's just not practical. That's right. right? There so, you go. So it's 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 the same thinking back in 1965. Let's give black folks the right to vote, mm -hmm. and over time, they'll be mm -hmm. able to be present and represented in various mm -hmm. levels of government. Well, over time, <laughs> we removed the right to vote for black people. That's right. We don't we don't ever finish that long term project. And so in the same sense, if that is the Pope's plan, his he he's late, first of all, to society. Right. And for folks to catch up to his lateness, society is going to continue to morph into right. its next yeah. iteration. Right. So, and, so and he's always going to be late. Right. And and also they will dig their, their, their heels in. We've seen this with this election. We thought the natural succession, you know, after Obama would be Hillary. But what we got is Trump. And look what we have here. People have dug their heels in. So no, that, that you know, if you're going to throw out a bone, throw out one that, that's going to land and really do a shift. My point is, is that he didn't want to do a shift. Easy shifts 
canonize Mother well, Teresa. Well, hold on, hold on. I think you've got to put this in a little bit of context. I mean, he doesn't have a lot of support. People talk, joke about how he needs a food taster over at the Vatican because he's so hated by all these yeah. people around him. So I, I think to dismiss the idea that Jim mentioned of appointing all these cardinals, that is a big deal because the church is like the United States. It's like totally divided between the conservatives and the, the liberals. And if you appoint more liberals that make the rules... I think that that is um, an encouraging move, and you're right about. By the way, know, I'm just speculating. I have no idea if that's true, but go ahead. Well, I mean, I think I think lots of people have written about this. I'm surprised the Washington mm-hmm. Post didn't mention it. That yeah. the more mm-hmm. the longer he lives, the more right. people in his image yeah. uh, of being more of a let's talk about immigration and the poor and the climate well, let's and less look about, about cabinet, abortion. Though. Let's look at our U.S. cabinet. Okay, we got more black women because, of course, we got to save the world. Okay, I mean, <laughs> Renee was very wonderful on, on that. That's another trope. Black women just save the world here. But the other <laughs> thing here, look at this. We have a very diverse Democratic Party, but look how it implodes on itself. Be, uh, on itself. I mean, we, we didn't want, I know we're not going to talk about Kamala this week, but the point is, is that you can have the window changing. But again, if you don't have the systemic change, it means nothing. So my point is, is that, like I said, he was a titular head for, for, for in terms of church bureaucracy. Did he? And I keep thinking, was he a visionary? No. I mean, he was the consummate flip flopper, largely because not because he was powerless. It's because he, he refused to use his power for change. Okay. Well, I, I think it's not that easy to change. I think that's the Monty, problem. I don't. Ha- I just support. want you to know. I don't. I don't hate. I, I. I can never hate the Catholic Church. I love the ritual. I love the incest. Okay, and I love Sister Irene. God bless her in heaven. All right. Who was a Marilyn Mon- Who was a Marilyn Monroe fan? But we got to know that. And I. And I believe this. You don't throw away the baby with the bathwater. But my God, this is a tsunami of bathwater that needs to be thrown out. Okay. We got to move on. To, time to talk about the confessionals. Sure. <laughs> I confess. I tell you. I tell you. I tell you what's ridiculous about this whole thing, concerning the secrecy of the confessional, because I think if your name is Marjorie Egan and you just murdered somebody, you're not going to go into a priest that you know and say, <laughs> "Hi, I'm Marjorie and I just killed someone." It's anonymous. So we have this debate about confession, you know, turning in people in the confessional. Mostly, ninety nine percent of the time, you don't know who it is in the confessional. By the way, we should just step back. Jeff Jacoby wrote a piece about it. There are a handful of states, including Vermont, that are contemplating exempting uh, the priest penitent uh, uh, conversation from uh, the protection from exposure in a court of law, just like attorney client is and that that sort of thing and he argues actually in part what you just argued one it's a waste of time because there's no evidence that uh any uh prosecution or pursuit of someone for example who was uh, guilty of sexual violence against the child uh was not gone after because of something that was only said in a confessional booth and the second point you make that for the most part it's anonymous so that even if that priest wanted to violate the priest penitent notion uh, that he would probably not know who the person was. So Marjorie, well, which side chase are you him. on? He could chase him outside. <laughs> he, he could chase him. Which side are you Down on, the Marjorie? Aisle. Um, you know something? I haven't, I, I don't know enough about this to have an, have an opinion. It's a creepy thought, certainly. That but you've gone to confession, in. though. I'm sure well, you've gone to confession here. I and, think, and, and, 
But I mean, how many Catholics do you know that go to confession in Well, in when I was a kid, I did. I, yeah. Okay. All right. But when I was a kid, I did. My whole idea, I used to say, you know, you know, you know, Father <laughs> Bless me, is, Father, you know? <laughs> for I have okay. sinned. That's yeah. how you start, yeah. right? But, 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 and but, it's but, been... 27 years is my last confession. (laughs) Piling them up. Remember, that's what you're supposed to say. You know, you're not supposed to be 27 years, but people, uh, um, um, you do, I've seen a lot of group confessions where people get up and they talk to the priests in a group like in Lent and stuff like that. But go ahead. I interrupted you guys. What do you think about? All all I'm saying is that you're right. I mean, confessional has a level of anonymity and then it doesn't because I, I do, I do think this though. You, I know there's the screen and all this other stuff, but come on, let's be honest. We knew what priest was in there. I mean, was in the in, in the booth there. My point is, is that you, if if you if you confess a crime, I think very well you can very well call the, you know, uh, locate that person. Okay, I got a question for you, Irene. Today. Let's yeah. let's go to our memories of confession. If you maybe had an impure thought, and you were going to go to confession. Wouldn't you go a mile away to a different church? <laughs> no, <laughs> a priest no, who no, didn't I know didn't. you? You, you know, didn't. You I go know. tell him. No, I need to tell you something. I went to confession because I had pleasured myself and was a little girl, and 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 then and then the priest had said to me not to do it again, and I said, "Well, how do I not do this when my hands take me where uh, you're telling me I shouldn't go?" No, but listen. So, so my, my, my point was that, but, but he was really good. He said, and then he said, this must be Irene. And I said, yes, <laughs> that is not true. That is not true. No, 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 because the kid, no, the kid, no, we went to confession. They know the kids. I mean, we're on the site there. No, he knew. Right. I'm, and you know, my voice, it'd be like, if you don't see me, you, yeah. you would know my voice here. And not so, me, man. I take my skateboard okay. five miles away. Okay, of course you said X number Hail Marys, you do the rosary, whatever. And he said this to me, which I thought was very, very honest. And, and I said, have he I asked him, had I sinned? I said, because I, I said, I just felt like I couldn't control myself. He said, no, but just don't do this in, the, in, 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 in company. You know, and oh. that was, that was, no, but that was a Yikes. changing moment. I want to say something about that because I, I mean, he, he died some years ago, but he helped me to understand my body wasn't a sin. I was going through something whether it's my body or my, my impulse or whatever. And I do think that not only do they know who we are, but there are some that help us through some difficult moments. And that one helped me. There you go. Do you want to add anything to this, Emmett? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> no, when not I... about your own personal experience. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, well, about right. the concept. I mean, that was... yeah. Yeah, I, I don't, you know, confession is not a ritual per se that I practice from the yeah. Catholic perspective. I do from from a Protestant um, perspective. And and one of the things that we are when we're consecrated as reverends, as as, as ministers, as pastors, uh, confidentiality is huge. So yeah. so to think that somebody could legally mandate me to break confidentiality goes against everything that I believe. So so I, I think it's absolutely wrong to even try to insinuate that that's possible. So I would like to respond to Jeff Jacoby's argument that as far as he knows, uh, there has never been a situation where uh, a prosecution or pursuit of someone who committed a serious crime was frustrated by uh, the, the honoring of the privilege. This is a text I just got from somebody who you know, Marjorie, whose name I will not use, but we know that this person is speaking the truth. The priest who raped me confessed his crimes every week for seven years. Oh, Nothing yeah. was done. 
Uh, uh, oh, actually, she just said it was fine to mention her name, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this I is know, Christine she, yeah. Hickey. Yeah, she said, yeah, nothing was yeah. done. I read this in a letter which the priest wrote to the Pope begging for help. So I would say that one, and by the way, she's one of the most courageous people yeah. I have ever she known. She is an extremely courageous she's written, many, yeah, she's written me many times Excellent. after the show and, sharing her story. Yeah. And, and by the way, this, even if in this one case things would have been changed, I would argue that is enough reason for change. Well, you know, right. you, you also think, too, in that horrible situation that Christine talked about, that you try to find some way around this. Wouldn't you? I mean, what would you do? You just talked about this, Emmett. If someone came in and confessed a horrible crime, um, an ongoing horrible crime. Well, Jeff did address, in fairness to Jacoby, he did say that even if a priest couldn't violate the privilege, the priest could warn authorities, you should protect Jane Doe or John Doe. And that's not violent. I don't think there's any institutional change right now, but what Christine has done, and I appreciate you, Christine, for doing this, is that just like you heard it the first time on the radio and it brought healing, you have brought healing to some other folks mm-hmm. who have been mm-hmm. who have been hurting with mm-hmm. this secret here. And I'm hoping that, you know, many more people will hear this so that there will be a priest like I had, you know, mm-hmm. you know, Brother Williams, who will say, uh, I might I might be able to affect change, and that's the, that's the only way it's gonna ha- it's gonna happen. But to look for Pope Francis to do it in this life t- lifetime, that's not gonna happen. I figured you might thing, circle around back to. And the, Christine uh, touches yeah, on yeah, something was. that was that was Bring the big problem of, of the Catholic Church is that she was talking about Father James Porter, who mm-hmm. uh, raped boys and girls, and people knew about him. I mean, yeah. he was spent right. part of his time in my hometown. River, people right. knew, about, not I, people didn't know he was raping anybody, as far as I knew, but they knew stay away from Father Porter and that this was wide known for so many years for so long that that was where the Catholic Church really did the most horrible thing and the, to and do the nothing. children's they've had and the, it's nothing to be in a Caribbean island I'll tell you and say oh yeah, yeah there's yeah. there's Pope Francis's uh illegitimate Ill- yep. illegitimate child but I even spoke to you around this community. Pope Francis illegitimate child well not are you breaking one, some news here no, I mean? no 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 not this one but, you, <laughs> okay. but what I even spoke about during the AIDS era that how we would get priests from up here to go to the New York um, Gay Health Clinic because there's no way that you could go to Fenway. Fenway wasn't up and running then, but go to Fenway and say, you know, I have AIDS or I'm HIV positive because of the whole notion of celibacy. Mm-hmm. So it, it so internalized, internally it creates a culture of, of sexual violence and shame. You too, the Revs. By the way, what's I know I asked you a couple of weeks ago and I forgot. Are you on hiatus right now or you're about to we go are. off hiatus? We are. Yeah, we're coming off hiatus probably in a couple of weeks, but we are presently on hiatus. Fabulous. We'll be looking forward to it. Great to see you both, Revs. Thanks so much Thanks. for your time. Appreciate Thank you. Thank you uh, very much for joining us. I've lost my script, Jim. Maybe you can do the out here. I'd be happy to uh, Thank do you. But you know why I wouldn't be happy to do it, Marjorie? Because I lost my... Oh, no, I did not. Uh, <laughs> by the way, I, I know who they both are even without my script. One of them is Reverend Irene Monroe... And one of them is Emmett G. Price III. Are you aware of that? Together they host the All Revved Up podcast. Thank you, both of you, Revs. Coming up, Odie Henderson, Boston Globe film critic, joins us next to discuss what? Last night's Oscars. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Mardrigan and Jim Browdy. Just a reminder, I'm sorry to keep beating you over the head with this. We will not be at the library tomorrow. Just a precaution about the uh, weather. We will be in Brighton, and the mayor has kindly agreed to change her location. Mayor Wu will join us from 11 to 12 for Ask the Mayor. Again, not at the Boston Public Library. We'll be back there on Friday. Last night, the 95th Academy Awards took place in L.A. Pretty drama-free, since there was no slap part two. When it came to the awards themselves, A24's alternate universe action flick, Everything Everywhere All at Once, swept pretty much not quite everything, but close. It won seven awards, among them Best Picture, Best Directing, by two Emerson grads, by the way, the Daniels, and three of the four major acting awards. To get us up to speed and bring us his thoughts, including whether uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, I'm embarrassed to say who I love, uh, won Best Supporting Actor uh, because of a We Owe You concept that our guest <laughs> wrote about. We're joined by Boston Globe film critic Odie Henderson. Odie, it's great to see you. Thanks for having me back. Pleasure. Okay, Odie, you very courageously listed in the paper uh, who you thought should win and who did win. So how'd you make out? What was the over-under on your predictions? <laughs> well, I got my butt handed to me. <laughs> um, I, I do this. I've done this for the past 30 years, this contest with my friend Danny. And he usually wins because I overthink everything. <laughs> uh, I went 16 for 23. He went 20 for 23 because I didn't listen to my heart and picked Michelle Yeoh, who did win. I was pretty sure she was going to lose. So, uh, again, sometimes they overthink it. But 16 out of 23 that's is not bad. That's pretty good. No, I think that's, I think that's great. We're going to go through some of the particulars in a couple of seconds. But before we talk about your categories, who will win, who should win, who shouldn't even be in the process. Jamie Lee Curtis, I think, was in that category, as was Brendan yep. Fraser. You'll correct me if I'm wrong. Can you describe what is equally important to me, how you chose to spend uh, 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 oh, I love this story. Yeah, me too. Your, uh, your Oscar night. By the way, it's our second Watertown story of the day. We had Matt Ruskin, who's directing and writing uh, uh, The Boston Strangler, which is on Hulu as of Friday, a Watertown kid. You spent the night in Watertown. How'd you decide? What were the mechanics of the deal? Well, usually we have an Oscar party in New York with some of the critics and friends that I've known for years. And after the pandemic started, you know, that went out, of, went out the window. But they decided to have one this year. Of course, I was up here. So I was invited by some friends of mine to come to their house. They have this tradition that they do, uh, an Oscar kind of festival where they show movies that they think should have been nominated for Oscars. And then there's dinner and there's drinks. And it culminates with everyone watching the Oscars. So, again, thanks to Will and Charlie for inviting me up to Watertown to do this. And I went yesterday. And the paper thought it would be fun for me to write about the experience, because whether you like the Oscars or not, the show does bring people together. Mm -hmm. uh, I was invited to four different um, professional uh, parties in New York. So people are coming back together. It's like the Super Bowl for people that <laughs> like movies. Really, technically it is, if you think about it. No one comes together and watches the World Series because there's so many games. How and, is the, how the martinis at Will and Charlie's? Well, you know, I, I had to work. <laughs> So I only that wasn't had, my question, Odie. I only had one, and yeah. they were very, very good. I don't like gin, so um, it was a very good martini. It had everything in it, not just gin. There was a lot of other stuff in that. As someone who can hold their liquor, 
Um, it did hit me a little bit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, martinis. A couple of sips pack a big punch. Well, you're a big experience. martini woman, I should say. Yeah, I Can we go down? Woman? You should have one of Charlie's martinis. Then I should. Um, okay. I like the I like the stuffed uh, blue cheese olives, and and uh, those are a very favorite thing of mine. How about you? Oh, I, I, that's too fancy for me. Too fa- okay. Man of the okay. people. So can we talk about the four acting awards for a second? I love Jamie Lee Curtis. I read your piece in which you said she shouldn't even make it into the finals. Not only did she make it into the finals, but she won. And it seems to me you're, you know, we owe you category. You wrote a piece about this the other day, sort of Lifetime Achievement Awards. My sense was if she got it for that reason, it wasn't even just about her. It was about her two parents, who she mentioned at the end, Tony Curtis and Janet Lee, who both been nominated for Academy Awards, neither of whom won. Do you subscribe to that or no? Well, this whole Nepo baby thing, I think I'm too old for this. <laughs> it's one of these uh, TikTok things. I mean, everybody's somebody's kid. So I think she got it because, again, she'd been around a long time and this, she was going to get swept in for the nomination. I predicted she would get nominated. I predicted she'd win. Part of the issue for me, and this also kind of goes to Angela Bassett being nominated, was that they figure, Oscars always figure, okay, well, for your lifetime of work, not just for this one role. You can look at Al Pacino and Paul Newman. I mean, you can't tell me The Color of Money is a better movie than The Hustler or The Verdict or HUD and so on. So I had ideas about... I like Jamie Lee Curtis a lot, too. I mean, I'm a genre person. I love horror movies, as you can see from my reviews of Cocaine Bear, <laughs> among other things. So it wasn't me saying, oh, she doesn't deserve it ever. What I was saying was that there were three times. I had mentioned two. Another one I could mention is um, A Fish Called Wanda, a wonderful yes. screwball yeah. comedy performance of hers. They don't like comedy. The Oscars don't. don't. And she's a very good comedian. She's a screwball comedian on, you know. She could have done this in the 30s. She's very good. So it wasn't so much that I thought she was a bad actor or that I didn't like her. I just felt that this was, you know, let's throw her a bone. And she won the Oscar. And Angela Bassett looked mad. Woo. By the way, she didn't stand up. She didn't applaud. And by the way, it's funny because, well, a lot of people are really angry at her. I thought it was disrespectful, this being Angela Bassett. There's a photograph of her sitting down amidst people on their feet wild for Jamie Lee Curtis in the New York Post. Uh, one of the hardest things in the world has got to be when the camera goes on you when you're one of the four, or in the case of the movies, nine losers. Remember, all, remember you know, when Samuel L. Jackson mouthed the curse word when he lost a post <laughs> oh, did. Yeah. Watch that clip. You know so, what he said. It's, so, Odie Henderson, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once was a big winner, obviously, last night. Best picture. Uh, we'll talk about the actor things in a second. Uh, why was it so good? Was it deserving of that win? Well, you know, I, I didn't pick it. I, I think it goes to the multiverse a couple of times too many. I like the movie. I, I gave it a favorable review, not not in the Globe, but in general. Um, I was rooting for the Fablemans, as I mentioned yeah. in the paper. It's the only one I saw. I or or Women Talking. I'm not surprised that it won. In, in a way, I'm kind of happy it did because, again, we talk about genre movies and about comedies and how the Academy doesn't like them. And also, I'm a huge Michelle Yeoh fan, so it was kind of nothing else. I wanted her to win. And I want to keep Kwan to win simply because he, his comeback story is to me is much more compelling than Brendan Fraser's comeback story. But also, can you tell us, by the way, for yeah, those who don't know, tell us a little bit about, I mean, going way back. Well, after Kiwi uh, Kwan had done um, Indiana Jones Temple of Doom, that's what made him famous. And he did The Goonies, one of my least favorite movies of all time. And then he couldn't get work. And that's kind of what happens to a lot of people. Even if you win an Oscar, Sometimes you never have another job that's worth 
you know, that's on par with what you got when you won the Oscar. Mm. Uh. So it's very difficult. And if, also, if you're a minority, it becomes even harder, as he mentioned. You know, with Brendan Fraser's issue was that, you know, he was assaulted and a bunch of other things happened. And, and you know, I, I love Brendan Fraser. I was hoping he would win for the Scorsese movie that he's doing now, as opposed to this. I thought, you know, I disliked the whale intensely. And I stand by what I said that he didn't deserve to be there or to win. Um, but for, for Kiwi Kwan, his performance is so good in the movie. I quoted that line that he says about, you know, I'd love to do laundry and taxes with you. It's wonderful. And he deserved his, his Oscar. Here's a little piece of his absolutely wonderful acceptance speech. At least I thought so. Here he is. My mom is 84 years old. And she's at home watching. Mom. I just want an Oscar. My journey started on a boat. I spent a year in a refugee camp. And somehow, I ended up here on Hollywood's biggest stage. They say stories like this only happen in the movies. I cannot believe it's happening to me. This this is the American dream. By the way, if you didn't watch last night, to say that the crowd was totally behind him and Yo is that they went absolutely yes. out of their minds when the two of them won. Can I we turn to one of the most distressing parts of last night? Sure. I was dreary eyed, but I watched the whole thing. I watched Melissa McCarthy come out on the uh, to the stage to the podium. There's no podium to the mic, and she's what's the name of the young woman who's the first black kid who's going to play uh, Little Mermaid? Oh, uh, Haley Bailey. Okay, so the two of them come out, and I'm figuring, what are they presenting? I mean, what what are they doing? There was no announcement in front here to present the award for best cinematography, and they play an excerpt. They talk a little bit about Little Mermaid. They play an excerpt from Little Mermaid, which is fine, and they go to a commercial. And it's clear to me that we just saw a commercial on the stage yes. with presenters not presented as an ad. What what was your reaction to this? Uh, we were mad. I mean, we all looked at each other like, what the hell just happened here? Has that ever happened before? I don't no. think so. No. Well, you know, Disney owns ABC, ABC. and the universe, practically. <laughs> so it wasn't a surprise that they would try to do this, but it seemed so underhanded that we thought they were coming out to present an award. We thought it was going to be animation or special effects or whatever. And they came out and they did an ad. The Little Mermaid isn't even out. Yeah. So it's not even nominated for any kind of Oscar. It was, let's put a commercial on the Oscars. And it was distressing. Yeah, I thought it was so, really distressing. We're so, talking to Artie Henderson, a film critic for the Boston Globe. You know, I, there were a couple of pieces I read this morning with the Oscars basically saying it was ho-hum. It wasn't very exciting. You know, I, I guess maybe that maybe that's true, but I, I thought Jimmy Kimmel was good. I thought it was it was uh, he, you know, he wasn't brilliant, but he was that his he was easy, Jimmy Kimmel. He was Jimmy Kimmel, and I thought Kimmel. it worked. What'd you think? Well, in my piece this morning, I said we ignored him. Yeah. And that's kind of what we did. We, we, you know, I'm not a huge, sorry, Jimmy Kimmel, I'm not a huge fan of his, but he could have been much worse. Um, <laughs> it's a hell of an endorsement. Th- th- there was an article, and in, in, I think it was in New York Times, that began with, you know, I, w- I wish that somebody got slapped. And that, <laughs> that writer, I was like, where was the editor? My editor would not have allowed me to say, you know what, I hope somebody gets punched in the face on the yeah. Oscars, even if I actually did hope. Somebody get punched, got punched in the face in the Oscars. <laughs> That's what the editor is for, to save you from yourself. Yes. Hi, Brooke. 
Okay, so let me tell you another moment I liked that I think almost nobody else liked. I'm a huge Lady Gaga fan, I should say. She wasn't supposed to be there, you know. What does that mean? She was supposed to be on the set of Joker. She said she was not coming to perform. Oh, I guess oh. I had read that. And just a couple of weeks ago, she said she'd do her song. She wrote this song called, was it Hold My Hand or? Hold My Hand or something. Something like that. Me. Okay. So she's sitting in the audience and you see her made up like you always see her, which is pretty heavily made up. I don't right. mean that critically. That's how she usually looks. All of a sudden, she's on the stage singing a song, ripped jeans, ripped at the knee, with virtually no makeup on, with a close-up that I, I'm sure you've seen the same jokes from Twitter I have. Let's see a few more pours. I'd lo- First of all, I think the song was pretty horrible, even though she's brilliant. I thought I love that piece. What did what, what, you think of it? I admire her for going up there, you know, natural. Yeah. Uh, we said, you know, can we get any further up her nose? <laughs> Well, that is sadly that was pretty close. So to I didn't understand was. why this giant close-up of her was the entire. So it took some drama away from the song. Also, the song is faster in Top Gun. If you watch it, that that brought up a, a comment that one of the guys had at the party. You know, why do you give these Oscar nominations the songs that play over the end credits of movies? That's a pet peeve of mine. I hope to write an article about that someday. But a lot of times. These songs aren't even in the movie. How do you win for putting a song in the credits when everybody's walking out? No, that's a very was that good a James point. Bond? That's a very good point. Thing too, or no? Because right James Bond's things were always at the beginning yes. of the movie oh, you're to right. set you're them totally up. Don't you remember? You're totally right. That's yeah. Right. But tell us about this other thing that won for best original song from RRR, the Not to Not to. Oh and God, the that, that dancing Whoa. was unbelievable. Oh my God, that was great. Tell people who missed it what that was all about. Well, in the movie, they speed it up. Yeah. Just watching him do it in real time was even more impressive than what you see in the movie. It's a musical number in, in uh, RRR where they explain what Natu Natu is. And Natu means um, ethnic, I believe the, the, the guy said. And they got to do this huge dance number, which is so, so much better than the David Byrne thing. I don't know what that was. <laughs> <laughs> and it looked like they raided Bjork's closet. Um, but... That was fantastic. And we were rooting for that song. The one that's a great song. And I love the the songwriter got up and sang a Carpenter song as part of his speech. Yeah. Yeah. So they grew up. By the way, the you can't describe on the radio the dancing. And I it's assume. go on YouTube. It's there. It it's was incredible. spectacular. The two guys. Everybody was I don't know how great. they did it. The two guys, one-legged, essentially. Yeah. The, oh, just absolutely. They were just brilliant. I want to defend David Byrne, though, even though he was atrocious last night uh, and <laughs> off-key and looking old. Do you see – I know you're a film guy. Do you see American Utopia when it came to It was to my town? number one movie of that year. Oh, oh, oh. I forgot it became I, a movie, yeah. too. One of I the most bro- it, and I saw it on Broadway after I was able to get vaccinated and they brought it back. But I saw the movie first, the Spike Lee movie, and I it helped me get through the pandemic. I watched it like 20 times. I saw it on the stage in Boston. It was one of the best – things i've ever ever it's terrific david byrne i assume for you young people at talking heads yep. obviously is where he came to fame and he's an older guy now but i really talented having said that that performance last night was not one so what do you take away from the 95th oscars if you if there's a memory what what is a memory or two odie on the good side of things that'll stay with you well i love michelle yo i love ruth carter who is from here, oh apparently. we have a sound from her she's a yeah. springfield kid oh we should play that yeah this was a set of the costume design yes. right yes let's hear a little bit from ruth carter who is from springfield thank you to the academy for recognizing the superhero that is a black woman <laughs> she endures she loves she overcomes she is every woman in this film She is my mother. This past week, Mabel Carter became an ancestor. 
This oh. film prepared me for this moment. Chadwick, please take care of mom. She was 101. Wow. One of my colleagues says Ruth uh, Carter is the first black woman to win two Oscars. Is that so? She is the first black woman to win two Oscars for costume design. And that's why I did not pick her. I said that she should win because if you do a sequel and you sequels are bigger, she upstaged what she'd won the Oscar Mm -hmm. for. But I figured they wouldn't give her to her a second time. She's the first black woman to win a costume design Oscar. Mm -hmm. And now she's won two. So that makes her historic as well. That speech was just wonderful. And she mentions her mother who was 101. 101. And just how she slid that in and how beautiful it was in the context of her speech. You know, that was very, very moving. Chadwick, so, oh, please he, take care of my mom. That yeah, is, that is yeah. beautiful. And Chadwick, of course, starred in the first of course. Uh, Black Panther yeah. and died at a very, I think he was 40-something when he passed 46 away. 46 or something. 46 effect, from yeah. uh, colon cancer. It was horrible. And so I, I, you mentioned, um, Odie, that you didn't think uh, Brendan Fraser should have won for The Whale. That's where he's a, a man with a lot of uh, heavy, very heavy men. 600 pounds worth. Um, a lot of people thought Austin Butler, um, Elvis portrayal as Elvis was going to win. I forget, forgive me. Did you predict that? I no. did. Yeah. yeah. So um, why did you think the, he should have won? Well, I, I said... He kind of looked like Elvis, even in his tuxedo last night. Well, I, I wasn't a fan of either of their performances. I was rooting for Paul Mescal or Bill Nye. Yes. But I said if the Will won Makeup Oscar, it was going to win. He was going to win because if you think about it, uh, Tammy Faye won Makeup and then Jessica Chastain won because basically both of their performances is Makeup. And yeah. so I didn't... Yeah. I was so offended by the whale. Um, I thought it was fatphobic. I thought it was homophobic. I thought he wasn't good. I thought Hong Chow was good. She was nominated also, she but was. she should have been nominated yeah. for the menu instead of this. So the the whale was just so offensive to me, and his performance wasn't good. They were saying, well, whether you believe it's homophobic or transphobic and, uh, or, not, or fatphobic, rather, or not, he's good. And I didn't think he was. And so he's also – the movie is so mean to his character. Yeah. And when it won the makeup Oscar behind him, we pointed this out, they had a, a picture of – Brendan Fraser and all that makeup and it was like just such a picture that the way it was shot was so against the character and we're like why did they put that up there so yeah I, I'm not a fan of the movie at all. I'll, I'll, it's a hill I will die on okay what you have for thing. dessert before you left last night I'm into the food Marjorie's into the films well, well, what you I have for hot, dessert we didn't, I didn't have any dessert but we had waffles with sausage gravy which is oh, great, great. Oh. we had Nashville hot chicken and one of the uh, sauces was called Death. The other one was called Pain. And considering that I'm a, a person that loves hot stuff, I chose Death. <laughs> so, so one last thing for me, Odie. How come the Fablemans got nothing? Not Best Picture, not Best Director. That, of course, would be Steven Spielberg. Michelle Williams was the mom. They kind of got uh, Best Supporting Actor, Judd Hirsch. They got nothing. Well, Michelle Williams kind of did it to herself because if she had been in the Supporting Actress category, we wouldn't be having a conversation about Jamie Lee Curtis. She would have won. Oh. Uh, I don't know. I, I thought maybe Spielberg might get screenplay originals. He might have like yeah. snuck in when they said they were going to split uh, directing with the Daniels and writing with someone else. I, I don't know. I, I, it's one of my favorite of Spielberg's movies. I love the John Williams score, which lost to the yes. three notes of uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. It's three notes. The entire score is bum, bum, <laughs> bum. That's the entire score. And every time when people were coming up to get their Oscar, they kept playing bum, bum, bum. And we just were laughing because that's the entire score. By the way, before you go on John Williams, when when Jimmy Kimmel said he was 91, which I'm sure is true, and has been nominated 53 times, is that true? 53 times, yes, this is true. And he's won five, he said. And did you see him? A little bit more. Yeah, he's... 
I've, I've watched, I've come here and watched him when he was the conductor of the Boston yep. Pops, right? Of course. I came and I saw I, the symphony is my one little bougie thing that I enjoy. Huh. So I, <laughs> I came to see him. Um, his score was one of the best scores he's done oh, for the Fablemans. Yeah. 91 yeah. years old gives us all hope. Odie, uh, it's great to see you. Oh, by the way, before you go, we teased last time you were here that sometime in March, you were doing a special seminar on the great All About Eve at the Coolidge. Yep. And I have Tonight is the night. Tonight is the night. I'm doing a seminar on all the gossipy things that were going on behind the scenes when they made All About Eve, which oh, is appropriate. good. Betty Davis. Betty Davis and Ann Baxter and Thelma Ritter and Marilyn Monroe was in this. You know, one quick thing. Massachusetts censored the movie. And I'm going to talk about that tonight. Um, I'm also introducing it in case you don't come to the seminar and you just come to the screening. I'll be there to introduce it. I will tell you what Massachusetts took out of the movie. Terrific. At the great Coolidge Corner, yeah, one of our favorite theaters. Yeah, probably anything vaguely sexual, I would imagine. Was that what they took out of the movie? You'd be surprised that they didn't. Some things that were quite sexual, they missed. It's always easier to fool the censor's ears than their eyes. Oh, okay. On that note, check okay. it out tonight at the That's Coolidge. A- Great tease, Odie. Great tease. Oh, Odie, it's great to see you. I hope to see you <laughs> again Thank you soon. very, Thanks very so much. much for your Thanks time. for having me. We've been speaking with Odie Anderson. He's the Boston Globe's film critic. You can check out his stuff in the Boston Globe coming up, or you should go tonight to the Coolidge Corner and see him in person. Okay, coming up, we've waged war against a single-use plastic bag, but is its heavy-duty replacement any better? Our number is 877-301-8970. We're opening up the lines. You can call us. Or text us at 877-301-8970. Listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Marjorie and Jim Brady. We are not at the library tomorrow. So we're concerned about the weather situation, keeping everybody safe. We will be doing our show from Brighton. And Mayor Wu was kind enough to change her destination. She'll join us in Brighton for Ask the Mayor, taking your questions and ours from 11 to 12 tomorrow. Again, not at the Boston Public Library. So single-use plastic bags are restricted in about a dozen states and in multiple countries around the world. You know, those thin, wispy bags not only split with the weight of like an apple, but also clog waterways and harm marine life for a thing of the past. But are the replacements much better? There's this new CNN story Marjorie and I read, finds that those cotton totes grocery stores sell now. Get this. They take 7,100. 7,100 uses to be an environmentally friendly alternative. That's because of the pesticides, the water, to grow the the cotton, et cetera, et cetera. And those durable, heavy-duty plastic bags that you're supposed to use again and again and again and again. In the U.K. alone, there were 1.58 billion of them last year used. So it ain't working. So the lines are open. Do you opt for paper, killing the trees, plastic, clogging the oceans? And be honest, how many reusable totes do you have tucked away in your cupboard to begin with? What is your bag of choice, number one? Two, is the environment and how environmentally friendly they are part of your decision-making? And three, uh, does 
does it work? 877-301-8970. What do you use, by the way? I don't even well, know what I, you use. You know, I have I have the bags that you buy at Trader Joe's or you buy at Whole Foods. I got I probably have about 12 of them. And uh, I try to put them in the back. I do put them in the trunk of my car, so I remember them when I get to the grocery mm-hmm. store. I have to get in the grocery store, and I've forgotten the bags. You either have to run out to the car and get really them shocking. or get the, get the uh, paper bags, which uh, I use to to recycle things in the paper bag. So the problem too is with the with the reusable bags, you have to make sure you wash them. Yeah. Cuz they can get, you know, bad things in there from the food. But on the other hand, if you go to CVS, now on CVS in Boston, they give you the plastic bags, and who remembers to bring the the bla- the bag there? So I end up lots of times carrying all my stuff out to the car in my arms. You do, that's not true. I do. That is one of the saddest want, stories I've another, ever heard. I don't want another CVS bag, Jim. I've gotten so many of those CVS bags. So that's what I do. Now, what is the correct thing that I'm sure Jim Browdy is doing every time he goes to the grocery well, store? I which generally is use constantly. No, I generally I do go to the grocery store a lot. I don't do. shop for the week because I actually enjoy uh, mm-hmm. as a leisure activity yep. uh, doing the aisles at my supermarkets of choice, which for the most part are Whole Foods in Cambridge. There are three of them, uh, four of them, four of them. And uh, Market Basket is my go-to kind of thing. So we have those three questions on the table. Let me add a fourth question. So what do you do? What do I do? I use the GBH uh, cotton tote bag that I haven't washed in about (laughs) 10 years. That is the uh, one I use. By the way, can I add a fourth question? I had three questions a minute ago. On the text line, I just checked. This is Michelle from Cranston, Rhode Island. Her question is, does Jim have to be such a jerk? And so – if anyone wants to answer, actually, you know, maybe it would be helpful, Michelle. Jim, tell me what I said today that caused you to ask that question. We get a lot of those And then we'll try day. to answer that. Yeah. I know. 877. I, I, I'm instructed not to read them. Three zero By me. 301-8970. What's your bag of choice? Do you worry about the environment? And do you basically close your mind? Because you know that if you do any reading, you're going to find out, as I said a minute ago, those cloth bags, those tote bags, 71 Hundred usage. And the reason for this, by the way, I'll read from the CNN story. Cotton is a resource-intensive crop, requires lots of water, uses a substantial amount of pesticide and fertilizers, which introduce nitrates to land and waterways and results in the creation of nitrous oxide, a greenhouse gas. So again, 7,100 uses of one of those, uh, you know, one of those tote bag kinds of things, cotton bags, to make it a truly environmentally friendly Alternative eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. You know, and they do advise from an environmental perspective. If you do forget your reusable bags at home, yeah. which people do all the time, yeah. we shouldn't buy or get any more there at the store. Uh, we would be better off um, to buy a single use paper or plastic bag, and and just use that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because okay, it, it, you don't want to buy any more of these bags at the store. So, I've, how many times have you done that? How I've many bought, cotton tote bags do you have? Do you think? I, t- I told you about twelve. Twelve, yeah, maybe fifteen. Yeah, um, they don't feel like they're cotton though. They, they're they the, are. They are those things you buy. Are they cotton? Okay. Oh, you, you mean the ones the that are like machine. plastic from the stores? Yeah, yeah. They're, I think they're the combination. Oh, they don't take seventy one hundred. They take seven point one million uses. <laughs> You you well, have to use them, and your grandkids have to use you know them for their whole lives you know what's to be an environmentally friendly alternative. Not only are we finding out that these bags aren't as wonderful as you thought they were, the reusable bags. I mean, Biden's going to let them drill for oil up there Can in Alaska. I, you know, I know that's not I'm a so topic. I'm so upset about what that. Is that. What is that I don't about? know. The stories I've read, and I've got to read some more on it, have not indicated why he's doing this. I, I, don't, I don't get it. When is McKibben with us? Does anybody know? I think he's with us. Uh, sometime, I think um, in the next week, 
I'm very curious to know what Bill thinks about this. Uh, Friday, oh, he's with us Friday, so we'll get a chance to talk to him about I that. Mean, we see all these horrible things going on all around the world now, climate-wise, and we're going to drill for more. We're going to have a whole new drilling site in very uh, pristine land. Let's go to Beth in New Hampshire. You're first on the, uh, I guess, the grocery bag hour here on Boston Public Radio. Welcome. Beth. Beth. Okay, Beth, thank you for your call. We really appreciate that. 877-301-8970. We'll try to get back to Beth in a couple of seconds. Do you feel as though the, your cotton toad has become a, a status symbol, Jim? Uh, well, you mean the GBH ones? Well, in general. I mean, you have more than GBH. I'm sure you I have, have mostly. Them. No, I have mostly GBH. Oh, okay. You don't have ones from Trader Joe's or I, Whole Foods? I have some from Whole Foods. Okay. Do you feel it's a status symbol? Do you feel as though you really shouldn't go shopping at Whole Foods? You could go to Market Basket probably without your a reusable bag, but really at Whole no, Foods? No, if I want a status symbol, you know what I carry. It was a pledge gift a couple of years ago, is the bag with your and my photograph on it. <laughs> Talk about humiliating. <laughs> By the way, uh, one of our colleagues, Jamie, did some math. If you use yeah. the cloth bag once a day, every day of the year, mm-hmm. in order to get to the 7,100 uses, you know how long it would take? How 19.5 years <laughs> of everyday shopping. We're going to try Beth again only because we're nice people. Hi, Beth in New Hampshire. Hi, can you hear me? If yes. you're Beth from New Hampshire, we can hear you. Hi. Yes, yes, you can hear me. Hi. Um, I use... I. If I went to a conference or a meeting or somewhere, or when Market Basket had their grand opening, they give away bags. Oh, they do. I keep them on the the floor in the back seat of my car because when I lock my car door to go grocery shopping, if I forget to take them out, I see them. I take them in, and then if I get meat or fish, I I use the store plastic bags, and whatever bags they plastic bag they ever use, if I don't have enough of my fabric bags. Um, I just say pack them up. I don't like waste of plastic. Well, you actually are thoughtful. You've really done some serious thinking about this, Beth. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I, ad- I admire that. Thank you very much for sharing your method with us. We really appreciate it. Uh, let's go. Oh, Beth in New Hampshire, 877 No, we already spoke to Beth in yeah, New Hampshire. I was, just works, looking yeah. see, I was reading the email to see if there's anybody else up next. Mm. We have a lot of emails from the, on this subject, Jim. Edith from Providence. Um, Pardon me? Text. A text. We have a yeah. lot of text on this. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. They're not emails. That That is correct. Edith from Providence says, I re- oh, the, my, my screen keeps No, they're moving, moving. constantly. Let's take I a call until the, foods, uh, until the screen's... Oh, there it is. Go ahead. No, it's not. Laura Amber in Amber from Worcester. I use my oh, Boston sorry. Public Radio bag, on which Jim looks like a serial killer. <laughs> no, it is true. I do look like a serial killer on that. <laughs> no, I do. Laura in the car, thank you for calling. Thank you. Sure. Can you hear me? We yep. can. Oh, yay. I am so excited to have gotten through that gauntlet. Never has happened before. Well, thank you. We're glad you made it, too. (laughs) Me, too. Um, I am a costume professional and work in film and television here in the area and do film, TV commercials, etc. And we shop a tremendous, like, insane amount, so much more than the hopefully average consumer does. And try really hard to use recyclable bags because the amount of waste that we generate just in the film industry in general is pretty astounding. But Mm -hmm. it's a little tiny helpful thing that we try and do. It doesn't always work, but I would say that our our usage of bags is kind of above the average. And what do you use? I try. We try. You know what, Laura? You know what's really upsetting? Wait, wait, Laura didn't say what kind of bag she used. Did she or did she? What do you use? Oh, you 
you're totally right. Um, I use a combination. There's some of them that are like this Tyvek-y material. Um, there's some that are cotton or cloth of some sort. Um, not plastic usually. I don't think any of them will hold up mm. because we put them, it, it, we're pretty rough on them. I mean, they get chucked around. They get put in trucks. They get dragged across the ground. Like they get, they get used heavily. So um, it's a mix. You know what I'm very upset about? Have you ever noticed when you go get takeout from a restaurant or you get a, a doggy bag, it's not a doggy bag anymore, they're almost always in those non-recyclable plastic. I mean, almost nobody gives you the kind of plastic that you can recycle. I mean, it's terrible. What do you mean, a bag from a restaurant? Yeah. It, I haven't it, gotten a non-paper bag from a restaurant no, no, in no. 10 years. If you get, if you get, if you get takeout or you get... If you've leftovers. not eaten your whole dinner, yeah, that's leftovers. what I'm talking about. Yeah, they you oh plastic, Jim. A lot of them are plastic. I live in Cambridge, so you know and they're I mean? four, five, six, seven plastic that you can't recycle. Thank you very much, Laura. Laura, for thank calling. you. Good luck Here's with your Here's Paul work. from Worcester. I bring a couple of Amazon boxes with me. They don't rip. They hold things of weird sizes and shapes without tipping over. Easy to lift and carry, and it's reusing something. If it's a big Amazon box, that would be quite a production, but that's what Paul said. You know what does. I'm more interested in than hearing what people are using what? themselves? If anybody's ever shopped in the same place Marjorie has and has seen her walk out carrying all of her things without a bag, <laughs> could you tell the well, you can't carry everything. call screener and we'll move it to the top of the list? You can't carry everything. How many things like, do you carry? Well, like you probably get seven or eight things. You I don't just hold think them so. Close to your How chest? many of them yeah. actually make it to your car? They may, I do it a lot. It's I don't think CVS because so. I always forget my bags at CVS. Kathy from Wayland, thank hey, you for Kathy. calling. Hi, how are you? Excellent. Good. I just wanted to tell you guys a little story about what CVS started doing a couple of years ago. What? On, they started giving out these pretty thick plastic bags. Yes. That um, you could use many, many times. And then if you read the fine print at the very bottom of the bag, it said, you know, recycle these at CVS. So I thought, great, amazing. I can't believe CVS is doing this. So I took the bag back to CVS, and they said, we don't take these bags. (laughs) Well, Kathy, I don't know about the CVS bags, but I know so many plastic containers say recycle, but they're not because only, at least in Boston, only number one in the little triangle, you have to look and see if it's number one or number two, and those are the only ones. If it's three, four, five, or six, they're not recyclable, but they try to fool you. Um, I don't know about the CVS bags, but I, I assume you're right. It, it's really kind of a scammy thing going on here, Kathy. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. yeah. They're saying bring them to the store. And I thought, wow, CVS is finally doing something yeah. good for the environment. Yeah. At Whole but Foods, it, 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 on the exits at Whole Foods, they have recycled places for your little, if you go to get the fruits or vegetables, you put them in those green, thin plastic bags. You can recycle those at, CV, at uh, Whole Foods. I've noticed that. Yeah, but the problem, here, as I said before, is you put like a piece of watermelon. I mean, I joked about an apple. Yeah. Put three apples or a piece of watermelon in, and the damn thing rips. Well, they're not that heavy. That's Kathy, true. But here's thank you. Alyssa from Ithaca, New York. She has hit on what we all need to find out. She says, just tell me what the least terrible option is, and I'll do it. And that is the bottom line, Jim. Well, you what know, is can I tell you something? I would feel if I were a listener that we're letting people down too. Mm-hmm. But I, I did a little research before mm-hmm. the show. Yeah. Almost every website has a different answer as to what is the uh, most environmentally friendly thing. If I had a rate, and this is unscientific, I would say paper probably was the winner. 
But we just have a woman here. Oh, I just lost this. There's a woman who texted a minute ago. This obviously is environmentally friendly. Who said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to mention your name because I can't find it now. She has cloth bags from Piggly Wiggly and Trader Joe's, and she's used them for 10 years. So obviously that's environmentally friendly if you keep reusing the damn thing, correct? Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, absolutely. That's what you, I mean, Lydia don't Worcester, buy any more is their point. If you get to the store and you forget your bags, don't buy any more because there's too many of them floating around. Let's go to Gail in Wilton. Thank you very much for calling Gail. Hello, Gail. Hi. So what I have is absolutely the perfect answer. What is it? Um, I Several years ago, I donated to Sierra Club, and they sent me a little packet of nylon bags, four of them, that fold up into this packet that's probably five inches by an inch thick by about four inches wide. And I can carry it in my purse, and I can fill an entire grocery cart with these nylon bags. I when I realized how wonderful they were, I called Sierra Club and I bought three more, the last three packages of them and gave them away as gifts to people. And they have been, and I've used them for probably 10 years. And my go-to other things I want to do, freezer bags, that's when I use the Trader Joe's um, bags. That I wow. carry. But this, I mean, I just, I'm, I'm coming back from grocery shopping. I had a full cart. I've got three bags full, one left over because, and yeah, they, they stretch. They're fabulous. They last forever. You throw them in the washing machine. They clean up and that's it. And you just fold them back up, roll them Gail, back up. Gail, you sound like a very proud person. Do you feel you're proud of this, right? I am. You should be. <laughs> I am proud of it. Now, Gail, since you are the best things I ever discovered. <laughs> well, that's actually pretty beautiful. Do you believe that Marjorie actually really carries her groceries in her arms? <laughs> Not groceries. Well, I'm talk- from am CVS. I talking to Gail? CVS. Pardon this- me. Do yes. you believe that Marjorie really carries all of her CVS items in her arms, Gail? Yes or no? Oh, well, I, I mean, I've so been either. known to do it if I don't think I'm going to buy a whole Oh, you're so nice, exactly. Gail. I mean, exactly. Audrey, that's, that's tough to do. Gail, well, thank you for your call and I feel it's like a work. little balancing practice, you know, put my yoga to, to work here. Now, did you read uh, Kim, Carrie in Southboro, Jim? No. Carrie says, I don't think Jim is a jerk. So Mark went down for non-jerk. Oh, so I just so did a count. Go. That's 412 to 1 today. <laughs> so actually, it's a smaller margin than on most days. Let's squeeze in one last quick one. You only have a minute, Heidi. Heidi in Westport. Hello, Heidi. What's up? Hi. Hi. Um, I felt that um, I've actually been to Africa and a country in Africa and saw all the incredible plastic bags just everywhere floating mm-hmm. around. It was just a horrible thing, but uh, I don't even and know where they all came from. When I shopped there, you you know, you pretty much took stuff back in your hands, and um, oh. I you reuse my my bags, whatever I have. I have some lovely tote bags that were given to me. I have those nylon ones the previous caller mentioned, yeah. as well as those plasticized ones, and I I still you know I feel. Everything has its drawbacks, but it's really important to keep all this stuff off the pla- from floating around on the planet. You were right. Heidi, well said, and thank you very much for the call. We can end this with a texter who said, I carry things out of the store, and then I juggle them, which I think... <laughs> 
That That's I right. would believe. That's right. I juggle right in the parking lot there. I just want to say really quickly, two texters, many of the bags I've purchased at Whole Foods are made of recycled water bottles, not cotton. Isn't that the right thing to do? But then the previous texter, David from Amherst, says, I still use a fraying bag from Whole Foods clearly marked, I used to be a plastic bottle. Feels good. Then I looked inside and found a very small tag saying, made in China. <laughs> <laughs> on that so, note, we're done. <laughs> so there you go. You just can't win on go. this front. But anyway, thank you very much thank for you. tuning in today. As Jim says, said about a million times, we're not going to the, to the Boston Public Library tomorrow. We'll be back in Brighton. But you can keep up with this 24-7 way of our podcast. We're going to be joined by Mayor Wu in the studio in, in Brighton. We're very happy about that. Michelle Wu will be with us. So attorney Casey of NBC Sports Boston, GBH's Jared Bowen, the Boston Foundation's Lee Pelton, and CNN's John King. We'd like to thank our crew, Zoe Matthews, Aidan Conley, Nicole Garcia, Hannah Loss, our engineer, John the Claw Parker, and our executive producer is Jamie Bologna. Anything you'd like to say, Jim? Well, anything I would like to say? Mm-hmm. Yes. I don't know if you know, we're not at the Boston Public Library not tomorrow. Not at the Boston Public Library tomorrow. We'll be in Brighton. And is the I mayor joining us? People I have ever been, they've never been in the studio, a lot of these people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sort of like we, you. Well... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm there quite a bit. Actually, I know. Yeah, actually, you are. It was really an unkind joke. It was an unkind. This That's is right the place. But Jim is not a jerk, as the at least one. It's actually four eighteen to, to one now. I am Jim Browdy. <laughs> I'm Marjorie Egan. Thank tomorrow. you for tuning in. Hope you can tune in again tomorrow and have a great day.